0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: Good morning, everyone. you with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for having me along. Thank you for listening in. Well, we've got a great show today, but don't forget you can text me at 2057. Send me an email inbox at realitycheck.radio. I love your messages. It warms me up, keeps me going. Uh, makes me feel part of your life and you part of my life. Uh, we've got a great show today because we're doing some, well, oh, the girls are called it speed dating, but investigating, talking to the leaders of, well, I started off calling the minor parties and citizen parties, and now I call them the real parties, the new parties that are coming along. And we've got New Zealand with Alfred Nauru, and we're going to be talking to Alfred about his time as a National Party MP and a National Party Minister, and why he has formed a new political party. And we're going to be talking to Sue Gray, who heads up the Outdoors New Zealand Party and is joined with Brian Tamaki's party to form Freedom's New Zealand Party. And we're talking to Sue about her time as an activist, as a successful lawyer, and the COVID experience and why she's standing for politics and why you should, we should think about giving our vote to her. It's going to be a great show. So stay tuned, sit back, get a cup of tea. You're going to love it. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Check. Radio. Thank you for tuning in.
2: alternative thought. And I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no canceling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information can make of it what they will that is the mission it's a good mission
0: thanks for tuning in to rcr reality check radio if you like what you're listening to or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to then get in touch with us now you can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: You're on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde and We're continuing our series interviewing, well, I've started up calling them the minor parties, then I thought I'd call them the citizens' parties, but now I'm calling the real parties. Actually, the parties standing for election this uh, election, standing for office, standing for your vote this election, who actually have real people uh, in them and fronting them and asking for your vote, not uh, what would we call them, sock puppets. Um, not the robots uh, that we have from the old parties that are already in Parliament. And I've got to say, I haven't come across one of the real parties that doesn't deserve to be in Parliament. Oh, my goodness, they've been, without uh, exception, very, very good, very principled, very valued, and outstanding compared to what we have in Parliament, which is just the same old, same old, and today it's a great pleasure of mine to introduce you to Alfred Nauru, Nau. he's going to correct me if I get it wrong, uh, who is standing as the leader of a party called New Zealand, which is a great name for a political party, New Zealand, but New Zealand with a New Zealand, and Alfred has been an MP, been a minister, so he knows of what he speaks.
3: Good morning, Alfred. Good morning, Rodney. And look, it's a, it's an honour to be here. I actually think, uh, if I can remember right, you actually had, uh, you were calling us the elephants in the room. Do you remember when you talked about this, you actually said that the true elephant in the room actually is about the minor parties. Yes. And I remember you you talking about that because there's a window of opportunity in our political history, uh, like never before, where actually these minor parties are actually where the topic of conversation needs to be. So, Hey, so honoured uh, to be able to be here with you uh, and great to have time uh, to speak with you this today.
1: No, well, it's my pleasure. I agree with you and I don't buy for a second. No one should buy into this wasted vote argument. That is a tired old argument pushed endlessly by what I call the legacy parties and the le- legacy media to reinforce the status quo. If there's a party out there that you'd like to vote for them, give them your party vote. And don't worry about them making it over the threshold or not. I'll tell you why. Because you've registered your vote with the party that best articulates your concerns, and the other parties and even the legacy media will have to take that on board. More particularly, It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say, well, I'm not going to vote for the party I really like because they won't get over the threshold, it's that sort of thinking that has condemned our democracy to what I'd call a professional political class and prevented citizens from entering our parliament and giving it a much-needed breath of fresh air and a shake-up. So don't for a minute think, oh, well, I'd really like to vote for New Zealand, but I really want to get rid of Labour. And so I'll vote for, I don't know, Winston Act or National. Well, um, I tell you what, that probably is a wasted vote because nothing much is going to change. (laughs) And it's this point when you vote for a a party that doesn't make over the threshold, sure, your vote doesn't count, but your vote doesn't count if you vote for National Act or Labour in a funny way because no election campaign is decided on one vote ever, it's the mass. And so what you should be doing when you vote, in my humble opinion, is vote for the party that most aligns with your values and that you'd most prefer to see in our parliament. Now, Alfred, tell us about yourself, because it's a big thing to head up a political party. It's a big thing to strive to get back into parliament when you've already been a parliamentarian. So tell me, you are a Cook Islander. Tell me about that Cook Island bit.
3: So I, uh, both my parents came from the Cook Islands, and they came uh, in the early 60s. It was part of, as you know, uh, Rodney, at the end of the Second World War, there was a labour shortage in New Zealand. There are three countries in particular that we have a political relationship called the realm countries. In other words, they are self-governing but in free association. Cook Islands, Niue and Tokelau. So my parents came from the Tokelau. They've got New Zealand passports, and they came into New Zealand to help fill that labour shortage. My mum was a cleaner. My dad was a labourer. They um, found each other at the Orange Hall. People who know, back in the day, it was the nightclub of the day, and they came there, um, fell in love, got married, and, uh, yeah, so I'm the second of their children. I was born in 1966 at the old St. Helens Hospital uh, in Pitt Street, across from the YMCA. Grew up in Ponsonby, 142 John Street, so in the inner suburbs. Uh, and then from there, my mother uh, and dad went out to West Auckland. It was the time in which you could capitalise your benefit. My parents were a working-class family, and they bought uh, a house uh, in Chilcot Road in Henderson. And then we then went on to schooling uh, during that period of time. My grandmother, by the way, was um, she was half-Jewish. Her name was good Rita Goldstein. They had this uh, very interesting mix. Um, An amazing uh, upbringing because it was a three-bedroom house. We had outside toilet, no running hot water. But, you know, Rodney, we never felt poor. We always felt that every day was the window of opportunity to succeed and to do well. Mm. And so that's the upbringing that I had. Uh, How many siblings? So there were six of us uh, Mm. from my my mum and dad uh, that was there, and then we all went on uh, to West Auckland. Uh, and then you yeah, trained as an electrician. No, just stop uh, there for
1: know. a minute because there's things here that interest me. You're going to um, think I'm even stupider than you already think. Is the Tokelau part of the Cook Islands?
3: No. Um, so there are three what they call nations of the realm uh, that ah. New Zealand has a particular uh, relationship with. But and your so, parents
1: are from the Cook, not Tokelau?
3: Yeah, they're from the Cook Islands. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: Sorry, yeah. I got confused. And tell me. Your grandmother yes. was a Cook
3: Islander. She was Cook Island Jewish. So now, her I father, can't get my head around that. I know. Well, her, her father, Marcus Goldstein, he was part of the pogroms. You know, back in Poland and around Europe at that time, there were the Russians coming down, obviously wanting to, to kill the Jews. So a number of them actually escaped, and he was one of those that went to England and then was on a ship coming down to Australia and New Zealand. He stopped in the Cook Islands. He met my great grandmother, uh Te Ariki. They got married. They had two children, two daughters. Uh, one died, and one lived. And one of them was my grandmother, Rita Goldstein.
1: And he lived in the Cook Islands.
3: He lived for a number of years, and then he left, and he passed away. So yeah, so my grandmother then unfortunately wasn't able to continue on uh, that that uh, relationship of understanding the culture and the heritage of you know her father's. Uh, george side
1: mm. how amazing isn't isn't uh the world a wonderful place when you think of that chance relationship and then you think of your mum and dad um meeting in a in a nightclub and six children are born and you grow up and it's just it's wonderful, is it not? But it's sort of like quite surprising at the same time. That's the chances and the windows and the doors that people go through. And they're momentous because for you, you were born.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I love the way when I think about the history and the things that she would tell me, you know, I, um, I've i still got letters that she wrote on the back of an envelope. You know, she was born of the generation, of the turn of the century where you know, you kept everything. And when we were growing up in Ponserby, we are on the brass bed, but the bed kept on getting bigger because there were things that were being saved, right? Every button, every yeah. piece of envelope, every pen, nothing was wasted. Yeah. And uh, it sort of got into the, the realm of hoarding. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's just the way life was. It was the culture that they grew up in. And isn't it wonderful
1: to appreciate it because – I don't want to growl at young people too much. But there's nothing more irksome than a a young person who lives an extravagant lifestyle telling you how you must conserve resources. And you think of our parents' and grandparents' generation who lived on the smell of a farthing and recycled and, you know, would at night would have 140 watt Bulb going in an entire house, have as you say, an outside toilet, bury bury the sewage into the garden, and they lived extremely low emissions lifestyle and sustainably. <laughs> and you get lectured to, um, by these young things that are jetting around the world, it just irritates the stink out of me, to be honest.
3: Well, I remember that you know, we had fruit trees out the back, we had vegetables in the garden, yes. You know, I remember that one of my jobs was not only me and my brothers to to collect all the fruit, but we'd then bring it in and they'd be boiling it on the gas stove, yes. and then you'd put the glass jars in the oven because it's part of preserving, right. you know. And then you'd have to get the cellophane wrapper and you had to yes. put the cellophane and the rubber band, and then yes. the little, then the label on the side, and then you had the shelf full of all of these. And it preservatives. looked
1: beautiful, didn't it? It looked beautiful, <laughs> it and that would be your 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 luxury dessert in the wintertime. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Now you just go to the supermarket and throw a couple of cans in the trolley. Tell me, you went off to be an electrician. Yep. Why?
3: Ah, uh, so I had two options. Um, my family come from a trades, mm-hmm. and like, um, for me, I mean, my dad was a labourer. He became a welder, and I suppose that I always felt that I was good with my hands, and so, um, I actually went off to be a Maori pre-apprentice, and even though I'm Cook Island they had opportunities for both Māori and Pacific. Mm. So, and believe it or not, Parikura, Parikura man was working for Māori Affairs, so he was he was in charge of us. So I did that, and it was a great time. I went to the hostels in in, uh, in Domit and Epsom, and then I then from there I went on to, to then actually go with uh, Jim Cato Electrical in Avondale. So yeah, I just felt that I just, I thrived. I enjoyed it. I, jo- I enjoyed the thinking, and problem-solving, that came uh, from that. And to be honest, Rodney, it's it's held me in good stead because part of electrical is actually reading schematic diagrams. In other words, when you've got the complexity of a situation, you've got a fault that needs to be found, you then track and trace that. And so systems thinking became part of my DNA.
1: Mm. Mm. Well, um, you clearly got good heritage because you look about 35 but i've worked out you must be about 57. So yeah. um you've you've got remarkable youthful looks and <laughs> outlook now how did you go from being an electrician to standing for parliament for the national party
3: well I actually went on to become a pastor I did a theological degree and my wife and I we ministered in Innes and Pamure. Uh she was a counselor so um We've been married for 38 years now, and I've had 38 years of unsolicited counselling. So emotionally, Rodney, uh, I had already been prepared for parliament, right? Yes. So, (laughs) Which I needed that. Um, At the end of 20 years, Were were
1: you Were you a full-time pastor?
3: Yes, I was pastoring in a church, and at the same time, too, we ran a trust. And in that trust, we had a kindergarten, food bank, op shop. Um, We delivered counselling services, youth services as well. So our heart was actually about serving our community. Um, we got involved in education and housing and health. And so we just had a real heart to actually help, also so help community. So help me relatable. here.
1: Help me here. You grew up a Christian? Yes. And which particular denomination?
3: Well, I was in, we grew up in the uh, Presbyterian Church, the originally yes. PIC Presbyterian Church. Yes. And then it was actually, my life changes that because. The foundations of prayer and reading the word were important, um, but then it, there came a moment where I realized that actually the foundation is something to build on, and I had then, uh, my own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and that happened when I was young. That happened when I was about 18, and I then started Wonderful. seeing how that could change and transform my life. So now the values that I had were not just about something I read and prayed about, but I could live them in my everyday life.
1: Wow. Yeah. And so you started your own ministry?
3: Well, we, we passed it through the church. And through the Presbyterian and, and, Church? No, we went, after Bible college, we went to a community church out in yes. Glenlin, it's called Tamaki yes. Community Church. Yes. Uh, yeah, and that's where we were for, for almost 20 years, yeah. And...
1: When you said you serviced your community, was that a geographical community in Glen Innes, or did you regard it as the Cook Island community? How did you perceive the community you were serving?
3: Uh, it was all all people in the community. So it was a, the geographical community of people inside Glen Innes. Uh, and then we also too found myself also to the wider region of Auckland, Mm-hmm. So uh, during that period of time, I was then also, too, with the Auckland District Health Board and the CFAC committee. In fact, Wayne Brown was the chair at that time. Yeah. Uh, I then also, too, was, I suppose, people started to see my ability to be able to analyze, to to bring leadership and understanding, and to bring other alternatives, and not just about how to fix problems with people, but actually how to help people find solutions, even to their own issues and problems that they were facing. And, and that's probably my point of difference.
1: Mm. You have children?
3: Four adult children and two grandchildren, three my boys goodness. and one girl.
1: Mm. Mm. Now, forgive me, but I imagine being a, a, a minister and working in the church doesn't pay great. Like, you'd be watching all your colleagues, electricians, people that you're, in the community who are working, and they have a lot of money. And I imagine you you and your wife got by on a lot less with your family because of your chosen profession, serving the community. Did you find that hard?
3: Uh, yeah, we did find that hard. We not only had our four children, but for a period there, we also looked after three nieces, uh, had my father-in-law with us. It was unwell. But, you know, part of the culture that we come from is that you know, family and community are important. And so uh, it was a season in our lives. It was difficult. It was challenging. But sometimes the best of who we are comes out in the hardest of times. And mm-hmm. so we built character around resilience, how to preserve things, how to be disciplined and how to be focused while still loving and caring uh, for our family and to the people in, in our community in whom we, you know, we love.
1: Mm-hmm. And did you regard your work in the community as being directed by God and serving God?
3: Oh, very much so. You know, it was very much a – I suppose that when people have said to me, what is it about what you do? And I said, I suppose that we learn two things, especially in the New Testament, love God and love your neighbor. Mm. You know, it's, it's quite simple. And so the more we love God, the more we learn to love our neighbors, to love the people around us. Uh, the more that we could see that the gifts that we've been given are things that we can share and help other people. And so you then act with a spirit of generosity. Uh, and so all of those have very much been part of who we are uh, and now it's been passed on to our children.
1: I've been very fortunate, Alfred, because I have been, I've had the prayers of a lot of listeners and um, and support. And I'm a very recent Christian. And I never thought I'd ever say those words. And it's wonderful to me. It's the most wonderful thing. I can't even articulate that. But I think you know what I mean. I think listeners who are Christian know what I mean. And, um, in fact, I'm tearing up just describing it. But as a recent Christian and a new Christian, I can't help but look out upon the world and find it so godless, so valueless, so so without purpose. And now I see all the problems in the world that I saw as disjointed and disconnected as one problem. Does that make sense?
3: It does. And one of the things I, I felt that even in my transition from uh, being a pastor to being a politician uh, happened because I really believed that darkness is really the absence of light. Yes. And so when we walk into those places, if we know the light of the love that God has given to us, yes. um, then we can bring that. And I remember that as a young child when I was going to Sunday school is that, you know, we'd sing the, their song, you know, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. And then the challenge for me was the question, of, then how big is your God? Is he the God of the Bible you've read? Is he the God of the of the prayers that you've prayed? Is he the God of the reality that can shift? If he can shift your heart, can he, you know, transform your home, and could he revive the nation? And I suppose that's that's the conviction. We call it a conviction, as you know, it's it's what we believe in is that we walk into. And I can say, Rodney, you know, I've seen significant shifts happen uh, around me um, because of the change in my own heart uh, Mm. that has allowed for others to change. Yeah,
1: Me too, in a short time. Now, did you tell me about your getting approached or approaching uh, to become a candidate? How did that work out? How did that happen?
3: So I was at a National Party fundraiser, never been to any political event before. Um, Sam Lotoinga had asked me to say the prayer at the end of the event. And as I was about to go up, um, my wife said, look, just one job, sweetheart, just say the prayer and nothing else. And I said, I am always your obedient husband. I went up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, my job is just to say the prayer. But I thought I'd like to say one thing. And I said, all night I've heard about left and right, red and blue, Labour and national this policy, that policy, but the truth is it's uninspiring. And it's uninspiring because I haven't heard a vision that captures the dreams and aspirations for me, my family, and even my community. It's uninspiring because I haven't then heard a set of values that would drive that vision. It means that you mean what you say, you say what you mean. And so I said that, um, so could we say a prayer like this? And I'd ask that you keep your eyes open, And I said, Father God, I pray that the political leaders of our nation, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that they will speak with a vision that captures and inspires the dreams and aspirations of our community and our people, and could they mean what they say, say what they mean, and could their word be their bond? If they got it wrong, could they have the courage to come out and tell us that they tried but they failed? We may not like it, but we would respect them. In Jesus' name, amen. As soon as I did that, I actually got a standing ovation. I actually thought I was going to get kicked out of the, of the function. And John Key came across and said, um, who are you? And I said, I'm just a guy saying a prayer. And he said, no, you're a guy that should be in Parliament. Wow. And that really began my journey of actually coming in to Parliament. And not because I wanted to. In fact, I had no ambition, no desire. Never been involved in any politics or studied politics or been a part of any political party. But when someone said to me, you're the perfect candidate because it's the House of Representatives, and if you could represent the views, the values, and even the vision of a community, your community, then that makes you the perfect candidate. And so that was my beginning of my nine years in Parliament.
1: Wonderful. What a wonderful story. And to be approached by John Kay. So you stood in a seat and got in on the list, I'm guessing?
3: Yes, and so I became a list-only MP in 2011. Uh, I was honoured to give the first address and reply, and you'll know this, at the beginning of every term of Parliament, mm-hmm. um, John Key, the Prime Minister, approached me and said to me, I'd like you to do that on behalf of us as a you know, as a party, as a parliament. And so I was honoured to be able to do that and to give that address and reply. And uh, it began, I suppose, my journey where I then took the attitude of an apprentice and so I decided that it's like, you know, the first job you get as an apprentice is sweep the floor and make the cup of tea. That's what people say, what are you going to do? I'm just going to sweep the floor and the cup of tea. In other words, no agenda, just simply to serve, to look, to learn and to listen. And as I took that, what I found was that people realized they didn't have an agenda, uh, Rodney, doors opened. And so I had opportunities to learn from, you know, uh, Bill English as a minister of finance about financial fiscal responsibility. I got an opportunity to be able to to look and learn about education and pedagogy and so forth, health, infrastructure, housing. And so I built up a knowledge, but more importantly, I suppose I built up trust within the party. And then when Bill English became the Prime Minister, he invited me to become a Cabinet Minister under his leadership.
1: How wonderful. How wonderful. Well, listening to you talk, I can well imagine John Key and Bill English picking you out for high office because um, you carry a conviction and an intelligence and an understanding which is, shall we say, without being disparaging, somewhat rare in Parliament because most politicians I think you'll appreciate are the opposite of you. You know, they just want to be there, don't you find?
3: Yeah, I um, yeah. Look, as you'll know, you've been there. <laughs> There's a lot of ambition, you know, a bit of ego, uh, or maybe yeah. a lot of ego, uh, and you know, people have, I suppose, agendas. Uh, my my only, you know, desire was to actually serve. Were your and, mum and dad
1: alive yeah. to see you elected to parliament?
3: Yes, they were. And I'm just honoured. Um, they're still alive now. Um, they're in their, their mid-80s, but um, it was such an honour to be there. And, and one of the things that happened is that I was classified as the first Cook Islander, New Zealand-born Cook Islander, to enter into New Zealand Parliament.
1: Well, they would have been so proud of this,
3: huh? Incredibly proud. And I was proud to to represent them and represent our community. And mm, I bet. And it's, it's a wonderful thing, yeah.
1: And then I guess – you were swept out in, was it 2020, with the Jacinda Ardern. So you you got swept out of office in 2017? Correct. You had three years in opposition, and then with Jacinda's landslide, you were swept out off the list. Is that correct?
3: Yes, and and I was pushed further down the list. And look, one of the things I'd say in 2017, you know Um, my wife and I prayed and said, should we stay or should we go? And what happened is that when Trevor Mallard took out the name of Jesus out of the parliamentary prayer, uh, not many people gave any mind to it. But you see, it's significant um, because, as you know, that prayer lasted for 165 years. That prayer was actually the very first debate of parliament in 1854. You know, when uh, an MP from Christchurch, McAndrew, turned around and said, point of order, Mr. Speaker, before we debate, deliberate, and decide the affairs of this nation into the future, we need divine guidance. And so for 165 years, there was a set of values. And despite Helen Clark saying that we didn't have any formal religion, we had a Christian foundation that the nation was based on. And that prayer simply said, putting all personal and private interests aside, we beseech thee that you would give us divine guidance that we would conduct the affairs of this house to the peace, prosperity, and welfare of this nation. We honor the Queen, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Now, those values were in Anchorstone, whether people believed them or not, but they held Parliament and government to account. And as soon as they were removed by Trevor, rephrased as some sort of New Age sort of statement at the beginning of Parliament, we've seen an acceleration over the last five to six years of... Values and ideology that no longer retain the very values that our democratic nation is founded on. So, 2020 was obviously the—I believe—the election of fear, and so therefore, I was one of 22 national MPs uh, that left Parliament at that time.
1: I now realise how significant that was of Trevor Mallard, and thank you for that because I was a different person when he did that, not that I was in Parliament, but I was a different person to what I am now. And I concur heartily with what you say. And it's this idea of these godless people who have no respect for our history or what's gone before, or the institutions that bind us together, things like marriage, Um, things like truthfulness, they have no respect for that. And every day is sort of like a ground zero where we're rushing ahead. And Trevor Mallard is one of those and he will scoff at a prayer that puts something above party politics and above individual ambition and ego. And if you take that away, then all you're left with is that ambition, that ego, that lust for power. And you're right. Um, I remember that prayer being said. And it was a moment of peace, even though then I wasn't a Christian. And it was a moment of thoughtfulness. And it was a moment of what that house has debated and been through in our hundred and sixty-five years. And so it put your day into context, because you'd think of World War One, World War II, those momentous moments. Mm-hmm. But to Trevor Mallard, it's all about getting rid of that and the crazy people we've had in power. And it's we've lost such a lot, Alfred, haven't we?
3: We have. And you know, the demise we are in a country didn't happen overnight. No. And, uh, but what it did is that once we lost the values, the anchor stone, then we've run adrift. And so, therefore, as you know, euthanasia got, you know, yes. accelerated. Uh, abortion law reforms got accelerated. Yes. Uh, and then when I was out, we had conversion practices, non binary gender. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible. Uh, acceleration of, wow. you know, legislation and more that actually has opened up, I suppose, some of the greatest concerns we have as a nation. Now having to try and define things that never needed defining, and rather than accepting things that were black and white, we've now got 150 shades of grey where we're confused, frustrated, uncertain. Uh, Yeah, and it's the condition we are in as a nation.
1: We can't even say what a woman is. Mm. So you left Parliament. What did you do on leaving Parliament?
3: So one of the things that my wife and I did, we thought, well, we'll just ride off into the sunset, do something else. But we felt that, you know, from a faith perspective, that the Lord was was leading us to begin to pray for parliament, to pray for, go- pray for government. And so we just began to turn to see to pray. It was also a good time for both my wife and I. I'd been away for nine years. And as you know, you lose time with family. You did. And it was a way of actually just spending time together. I mean, lockdown obviously had that moment. There were some funny moments though, um, Rodney, that I'd, you know, I'd get up and she'd look across, oh, you're still here. <laughs> 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 she would got used to me just being gone. And yeah. then she'd say to friends, well, what's it like having Alfred home? Well, it's sort of good and bad. I mean, the good thing is that he's at his home, but the bad thing is that he's so opinionated. Yeah. And I keep telling him, this is not Parliament now. This is not I I'm I'm the law here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the home. Boss. <laughs> so You know, it was wonderful for our our marriage and our relationship to spend some time, you know, uh, again together. And at the same time too, we just learned how to pray and intercede for our our parliament, our government, bringing the experience of faith and the experience of our politics uh, together. And then uh, focusing on that. We did a lot of work around um, Maori leadership, uh, telling the other side of the story of the gospel story, you know, from 1814, Samuel Marsden, but then hearing the other sides of the Māori story about the significance that it's played uh, in regards to peacemaking in the nation, you know, from everyone from Ngāti Parau to Upper Ngāpui, Wirimu Tamihana in the Waikato area. And you can see that our history and our heritage has so much of this Christian faith while others sort of look at it in a negative light, there's been so much to be proud of that is a so foundation much. stone for us.
1: Mm. So much, so much. Um, And you made a decision not to stay with National and offer your services to National again, but to start a new political party. Why was that?
3: Well, when I was interviewed about that i said that you know i hadn't moved away from national national had moved away from me and all the other conservatives them mm. now i believe have become far more open to be liberal rather than hold as conservative values i personally didn't want to go back rodney i felt that i've done my dash and you know but again i mine is a faith story I, I can't say it any other way where you know 15 weeks out you know 105 days away from the election i really felt the presence of god come to me and the first thing he said is let it go you see at the end of my nine years I'd made a vow I was never coming back it had cost me and my family too much and when I let it go and I said Lord I will serve you if it means to go back again I will do that and as soon as that I just began to weep I began to cry and I realized what God had put inside of me is his love for this nation and for its people and it's unshakable it's unmovable and so now we're running at this mountain We're running to this giant uh, called government and we are unafraid. And we know, and I know that this love inside of me is an incredible love that is far reaching into the communities around the country, into the small highways and byways, little country towns and so forth and regional rural areas, places that are forgotten and in some cases despised. But this love of God that is inside of me is incredible. And so, um, you know, mine is a conviction story of believing that I've been called for such a time as this to be able to bring truth while exercising grace and then also to overcoming the fear that is in our nation by also proclaiming hope and encouraging people to vote for hope because that's what a vision is actually birthed out of for this nation and for its people.
1: You must have been appalled like I have been appalled with the voting record of my party, the ACT Party, and your party, or our former parties, the National Party. I did not believe it when I was told that ACT National had voted for the Gender Identity Bill or whatever it's called mm-hmm. that would allow you and I to change our birth certificate to say we were girls. I could not believe that Labour or the Greens would vote for that. It is so nonsensical and dishonest. But for National and Act to vote for that, this is crazy stuff. They're like, they're like got the devil possessing them or something. I mean, that's just <laughs> insanity, is it not? You must have looked at that and shaken your head. And there must be, you must be familiar with good conservative MPs in the National Party who have swallowed a shipload of dead rats to have to vote for that.
3: Yeah, I do, and and, uh, it is very sad. It's a sad day in which they did do that. You and I know, Rodney, that inside that place, they, they call it the political spirit, and it's so easy to get caught up in the hype of power Uh, the insatiability of being able to sort of then at times manipulate and coerce and control. It is intoxicating. And if you're not careful, you can get caught up in that moment and you lose the sense Mm
4: -hmm. of the very
3: values that you once believed in. Mm -hmm. And I just believe that's what's what's happened uh,
4: Mm -hmm. to
3: those that are in there. I mean, even to the point that, look, when they had the protest outside, I was texting, I mean, I wasn't there. I was texting some of my colleagues and I said to them, What are you guys doing? Why aren't you going out? I said, We always went out, even though we didn't believe yes, uh, in the always. people. And yet, somehow, you know, they drank the Kool Aid. They believed that it was the right thing. That Trevor Mallard and Jacinda were doing were telling them, Let's stand in solidarity. Well, you're the opposition. <laughs> you don't have to stand for things you don't believe in. In effect, of anything, you should be acting accordingly uh, to your conscience. And this is what, like you, in the word appalled, you know, um, is quite a diplomatic way of saying that you're just not even disgusted and disappointed, but this is what happened uh, to people. But this is what happens in politics. You can lose your way so easily.
1: Um, I don't want you to be, I'm not asking you to be disparaging in any way of other people. It's rather an insight that you may be able to help me with because I want to like Chris Luxon because I hope that he'll be an ex-Prime Minister. But on paper, I should like him. Successful CEO, businessman, friendly, outgoing, John key rates him, Um, but I can't get over this one fact that he's a Christian who won't put his faith into his words and his actions, and I know that's possible because I saw it firsthand with Bill English, who was a wonderful man and never, ever shrunk from being a Christian. And he was an extremely successful and able politician, probably, to me, one of our most successful and most able. I would rate him above John Key, which would surprise most people. So how is it that you can be a Christian and park it for politics. I understand how you can do that. But you're doing the exact opposite of what being a Christian is about to me. I mean, it's it's a total absence of principles and feeling. And I don't want to disparage the guy. I'm I struggle with it. What what on earth would possess a person to be like that?
3: I think one of the things that um that we learn when we're in parliament and especially in campaigning and electioneering, people look for two things. They look for trust and they look for confidence. Trust is a hard thing. In a sense, inside of their heart, inside their conscience, inside their instinct, you know, do they come across as someone that they can trust? The second one is confidence. In other words, can they do the job? You know, do they have the ability to be able to lead? and make good decisions, wise decisions, and he would be innovative. You've said it right there when it comes to, to Chris Luxon. I mean, the CV tells it all. It talks about his ability as a leader, as a manager, um, as a CEO. And on paper, you could say he's got the record to do the job. But the one thing I find that I hear most about people when they talk about Chris Luxon is a word for trust. Mm. And look, I'm down here in Lumsden you know, down here in the uh, bottom of the deep south, right? And we're heading over to Wanaka. We've just come from in uh, cargo and so forth. And, you know, um, one of the things that uh, people look for is that in your leadership, that actually you, you know, you look after your people. Good leadership is looking after your people. And so people have told me that, you know, when they saw the way that Chris is a leader, at times treated some of the very people, and you'll know them, some of them from around this area here, they lost trust that he was a good leader. When he wasn't able to stand for the things that he believed in, they said they lost they lost trust that he couldn't stand for principles. Um, when he was um, trying to articulate things and somehow they weren't sure that actually he meant what he saying and says what we mean, people lost trust. And so it's the one thing I hear all the time is that people say he's a nice guy, but we just don't know if we can trust him. And I'd trust concur. is an instinct. It's an instinct, right? It's something that comes yeah. from the heart. And uh, so that's the most common thing that I hear from people. And I would have to say that I concur with them. I I, I agree with them.
1: Now tell us about New Zealand. And after you've told us about New Zealand, tell us why Listeners and others should consider you for their party vote.
3: So New Zeal, I love the word zeal because it means energy and pursuit of a cause. Uh, New Zealand, um, we set this up because we just believed it It was a conviction from our heart to actually be a party that represented a set of values in the political landscape. You know, there is a position for political conservatism and conservative Christianity. It becomes really important. So we're a political party, but we've got strong Christian conservative values. That's who we are. We're unashamed of those. Uh, So we serve all New Zealanders, but we believe that we are called to present ourselves as an alternative inside that landscape as well. Uh, The things that I suppose that for us that in our values, and we talk about the family being critical. Now, everyone talks about the family, but experience will tell me when I was a minister, that at the moment we removed the family from the center of our policy framework. Yes. And so we're now seeing unconsented uh, opportunities by Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education and so forth. When the vaccines came rolling out and they wanted to vaccinate the children, they actually went to the schools and said, you can be as young as 12 and you do not need the consent of your parents. Yes. Now this is what happens when you remove the families from the center of your policy framework. And that's the point of difference having been there. We can talk about our priorities with intelligence, and it tells you about the hell. We're talking about farming. You know, I was talking to farmers well before, you know, even setting up a party. Over two years ago, uh, I had a relationship with farmers, seeing the burden of compliance, because we created a blame culture at the moment. And rather than our farmers feeling like they were the heroes of our economy, producing food for our families, they've been now, now been made to feel like the villains. And now we've got an ideology that's actually putting the burden of blame on our farmers, our food producers, uh, for all the things around pol- you know pollution and, and climate change and so forth. So for us, we want to advocate for and work with our farmers, who are the most emission-efficient food producers in the world. Uh, we talk of, about the future and education, and we know that at the moment we've got education, which is struggling to be able to educate our people some of the basics of reading, you know, writing and even mathematics, there's extracurricular activity. That's actually the role of responsibility of the family, not of the schools. But we want to remove that extracurricular activity and we want to reintroduce parents as first teachers. You remember that acronym PAFT that becomes important. So that's what we do. We're providing these as, you know, these are very simple but foundational principles and policies mm. that are really important. We talk about finance. And so for us, fiscal financial responsibility is less about money and more about attitude and behaviour. And, you know, Rodney, we used to call it the public purse for a reason, because it reminded us that, you know, this fiscal envelope is made from the taxes of hard-earning Kiwis, from cleaners to farmers to business owners, and that's where the contribution. So we we were conscious that whatever decision that we make need not be wasteful, always sought the best outcome for the people. But we've seen over the last... Five to six years, incredible wastage because we've forgotten that it's a public purse. Inside our finances, we also know that the backbone of our economy is our small to medium enterprises. I came from that sector as well in construction. So we want to back up our SMEs, 550,000 of them, especially in the first five years where they've got the biggest fallout rate, especially around provisional tax, GST and PAYE. We want to provide backup office support and finance, legal and HR and at the same time, too, one of the things that I, I know, and we talked about it when I was a nationalism minister, was our contribution to research and development. Innovation is the key to actually allowing our economy to thrive and to grow. And so for us, that's criti- uh, critical as well. And so we want more investment in innovation, uh, R&D, not just for the corporates, but in particular for our small to medium enterprises. And the last one is around freedoms. You know we know at the moment it evokes such a powerful emotion so we believe that it's important and new zeal will actually stand for the freedom of speech it will ensure there's freedom of religion and also to the freedom of choice and conscience and so those things are critically important uh, to us to answer the question that you see the last part which is about why why would listeners why would kiwis why would ordinary new Zealanders in new zealand consider new Zealand? I'd ask that you would consider that when we think about trust and confidence, you've heard the conviction of my heart. It's not the ambition of thinking of status. Rodney and I know that you should never remain the stone of politics or of being a politician. It's an incredibly challenging uh, place to be in. So the conviction of my heart is simply to do one thing, which is to serve this nation or to serve its people, to love this nation and love its people as well. That's the conviction of our heart. The second thing is about confidence. So that comes from being able to do the job. I've had nine years of experience uh, in the political arena. I've been a cabinet minister. I've got Paul Adams, who was three years with United Future, and Peter Dunn. Oh, yes, excellent. And uh, so that's 12 years political experience. We've got people in our team of 11 who have experience in farming, education, business, and health. These things mean that we've got the competence to be able to do the job while experience that adds to it as well. And so that's our heart. This is our head that we're presenting to you. Yeah. And when it comes to time and people say that, you know, it's too short. You know, Rodney, you remember in 2002, Peter Dunn simply had a moment in time where out of the political noise, he spoke truth. And the sound of truth meant that in that short period of time, he went from a one-man party to nine people in 2002 and entered in Parliament. He's and been- so we want to... We want to speak a sound of, uh, to resound the sound of truth and to give people hope. You don't have to vote for the list of two evils, because that's a vote out of fear, but instead you can vote out of hope. You can vote for your values, because it's never a wasted vote. And when you do that, this is the return of a country that we are all aspiring and looking forward to as well. Uh, so my name is Alfred Rotton. that's I'm the leader of the New Zealand party, and, and this is what we're doing, presenting ourselves forward uh, to the nation.
1: Well, you couldn't have done a better presentation for me um, to win my vote, Alfred. It's Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been honoured and privileged to have Alfred Narrow with us from the new party called, get this very clear, New Zealand, which is that energy for New Zealand. Oh. I couldn't imagine such a great presentation, Alfred. That was just Wonderful. And I truly hope and pray that you and your team get into our parliament because, my goodness, we need you and we need your team. And I wish you every success. And I'll pray for you to have the wisdom and the energy that you need for this race to election day and beyond. And I wish you uh, Godspeed.
3: Thank you, Rodney, and can I just say thank you to you. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your consideration and even mm-hmm. the depth of your reflections just during this interview. I have to say it's been one of the most calming, peaceful, reassuring um, you know, interviews I've ever had, and I just want to say uh, and I want to honour you for your service as well, mm-hmm. and thank you.
1: Thank you, Alfred. You get out there. Win those votes. (laughs) I want to have you back as a minister.
3: Oh, that's great. Well, we're heading off to Wanaka now, and, yeah, we've been to quite a few small little towns, and that's where where the people are saying that. So bless you. Thank you so much. And bless
1: your wife, too, because she's giving up a lot for us. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye, Alfred. Bye-bye. There you had it. That was Alfred from New Zealand, New Political Party. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. How wonderful was that? We've had such wonderful presentations. But to me, top of the box, that's a man that we need in our parliament. That's a party that we need in our parliament. That's the leadership and the guidance that we desperately need. And just compare that presentation to what you hear from National, Labour, Act, New Zealand First, the Greens, the Mary Party, and ask yourself, you can't be wasting your vote to vote for New Zealand. Can't be. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.
2: The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference.
1: You're on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're continuing our interview of the party leaders of what I'm now dubbing, I've gone through a few iterations, the real politicians and the real political parties rather than the sock puppets that we keep recycling in our parliament and getting the same dismal leadership and results. And it's a great honour and a privilege uh, to introduce this morning Sue Gray from the Freedoms New Zealand Party. You'll recall Ali Cook. We've had her on, gosh, many times because she's doing such a lot. And she's a member and a candidate with uh, Freedom New Zealand, Freedoms New Zealand Party. And Sue Gray is the co-leader with Brian Tamaki. Good morning, Sue.
5: Good morning, Rodney. And also thank you so much for inviting me on. It's awesome to be here.
1: Well, you're a interesting character because I don't know you, but I feel as I do because you have been an activist on many causes, sort of forever. What what makes you an activist? What makes you a protester? What makes you stand out and stand
3: up?
5: Actually, because I care a lot. I care a lot about New Zealand. I care a lot about having a future for our kids, for, for grandkids. And I'm really sad about the direction things are going where Power is being taken away from people and communities, and it's being centralised and globalised. And a lot of the decisions that are being made are just not good for us. So I sort of a lot of people
1: care. I don't mean to be rude, but a lot of people care, but they don't do anything. Like I sort of care, but I don't do much. But you're actually out there beating the drum. What gives you that extra push? Is it something in your upbringing? Is it a need to be? What is it?
5: Yeah, good question. I mean, I've always been um, full of energy and I've always been really determined and I've always had to fight for everything that I've got. You know, I didn't come from a wealthy background or anything. I was the first one in my family that went to university and I guess I've just learned that if you want something, no excuses, you've just got to get up and do it.
1: Well, these days, of course, to put your head above the parapet and question the government and the dominant narrative or shall we say even the world order as to not be criticised or abused but to almost be decapitated. <laughs> and the media, rather than reporting different views, has become executioner.
5: Yeah, that's a pretty fair summary.
1: And along with the government working hand in hand to destroy people like yourself who are questioning government and suggesting alternative courses of action, you don't get reported any longer. You just get abuse. It's amazing to me to watch. It's scary to me,
5: yeah, it it is because you know I come from a background of of science, law, connected with people all around New Zealand and all around the world. Like I spend a lot of time listening to people and and tracking down different views on things because I always like to have a really good understanding of how everything fits together and and what's driving things and who's calling the shots, who's paying the money. And and just why things are happening the way they are. And I think I do a huge amount of research and I try to be as not well independent. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm never independent because I'm I'm standing up for the people that I believe in, which is the public. Um, but it it does never cease to amaze me how many people are willing to take fairly major pot shots at me.
1: Yes. Um When do you think it became next level? My observation is I can remember being dead against um, the whole climate change hysteria, and I could argue the science with anyone and the data and all the rest of it, and I couldn't make any headway. And in Parliament, I was just considered kooky And then I got labelled a climate change denier and um, didn't care for the planet. But it wasn't, and then I just didn't get reported about it, but it wasn't nasty, Mm. right? No one one went out to deplatform me, cancel me, execute me. But all of a sudden, it seems next level, and you've been active all through that period. When did it change? Do you think?
5: Oh, I mean, I've I've stood up against the system for a long time on lots of different issues, and it got pretty personal when I challenged the apparent bias of the former Supreme Court Judge Justice Wilson when I was. Oh at yes,
1: that'll at do Saxmere.
5: it. and you won. <laughs> And we won, yeah. Um, the,
1: the 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 Supreme Court judge, just for everyone to know, had to resign for. Correct me if I'm wrong, not declaring an interest.
5: Yeah, for um, he mentioned that he had racing interests with the lawyer for the Wool Board, but he. F- forgot to mention that he was indirectly indebted. So on his salary of 430000 a year or whatever it was, he couldn't keep up with his share of the cost. So he was borrowing money um, and the lawyer was basically paying as he went. So effectively he owed money. So the second time we went to the Supreme Court, they agreed that there was apparent bias and he should have accused himself. So we didn't have a fair hearing.
1: He was in debt to the lawyer on the other side of the case and didn't recuse himself.
5: Who was a partner in his horse racing stud.
1: Oh, my goodness me. Yeah. That was Bill Wilson. Well, he wasn't
5: actually, he wasn't exactly indebted, but the lawyer and the stud had guaranteed the judge's borrowings.
1: Okay, got it. Yeah. Got it. Well, that's such an obvious conflict. And need to recuse yourself that, you know, the man in the clap and bus or the pub would see that in a heartbeat.
5: Well, we thought that, and we actually did the test at super, you know, when you're queuing up at the supermarket <laughs> and you strike up a conversation, <laughs> what do you think? Do you think it's okay or not? And nobody thought it was okay, except the Supreme Court, the first time we went there, uh, the second time they agreed it wasn't okay too.
1: So that's when you noticed it get personal.
5: Yeah, well, at the time that happened, I'd been working for myself, but I started working part-time for the government for the Department of Conservation. And so after my client filed back in the Supreme Court, I got a call from Al Morrison, who was the Director General of Conservation, who basically said, "Uh, we think you're conflicted as in me. And I'm going, really? Really? So that all got pretty nasty. I ended up getting fired by Doc and taking a personal grievance and eventually getting getting a good settlement with them. But um, it was a pretty brutal process. Why did Al
1: Morrison suggest you had a conflict of interest? Do you know?
5: Yeah, because the Solicitor General had tapped him on the shoulder and said, get her off the case.
1: Get her off what case?
5: Off the Supreme Court challenge, they wanted. Oh, men. really? Yeah, yeah. There's a long history to all this. They wanted. Funny enough,
1: I think I can recall you coming to see me when I was an MP about this case.
5: Yeah, that could be right. Yeah.
1: And I knew, I knew the gentleman who you were representing on Saxmere. I've forgotten his name, but he was Peter Redford. That's right, and he had a yep. great case. Yep. Against the wall board he was a great entrepreneur and you were doing great work. So you were challenging this obvious need for a judge to have recused himself and in sitting in judgment where he was conflicted or at least apparently conflicted, if you know what I mean, that's the rule. And you were representing your client, you were taking that case, and then you were working for the Department of Conservation and because of that, they said you had a conflict of interest working for a doc. Oh yeah. my goodness.
5: Yep. They said the crown is indivisible, the courts are indivisible, and it ah. I had a conflict which, which I'd always
1: So expect. you were in effect taking El Morrison to court as well, the way I he's
5: no, no, I mean I was always taught at law school that there's supposed to be a separation of powers between the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary, but all of a sudden Doc decided or the Solicitor General decided that there wasn't. It was a messy case. You know, it was really messy because – I was communicating directly with the Prime Minister's office and the Attorney General's office before we went to the Supreme Court explaining the issue because we'd won in the High Court and then we'd had this terrible hearing in the Court of Appeal and explaining that we didn't believe we'd had a fair hearing. And and they wouldn't do anything. So the only thing left to us was to go back to the Supreme Court. And it was really unusual, you know, we went to the Supreme Court and said, look, we think that one of your judges, who heard the case before he got promoted to the Supreme Court, um, shouldn't have heard the case, and we want a rehearing. So it that was an extraordinary, tough. unprecedented case.
1: Yes, big time, and he had to step down.
5: He did. Um, he had to step down eventually, but he—they—they they covered him for quite a while. He continued to sit on the Supreme Court. Even after that, and he continued to hear more cases with the same lawyer, but I found out that eventually the Crown paid off all of those parties, or at least some of them, from those cases. They never publicly said that, but I I met one of the parties or one of the representatives of parties later on.
1: Isn't it funny that in popular culture, we love the little guy standing up against City Hall. And in modern times, we particularly love the woman who's standing up against big corporations and big government and fighting for the little guy. And the media, the legacy media, present themselves as being the champion for the citizens and yet the whole system closed around Sue Gray.
5: Yeah. Well, actually, with Saxmere, the media wasn't so bad. So that no. was about 2008. Yeah. And in those days, the, the I mean, we were on front page stories in the Herald and, and the Dominion Post and the press had a big story. I mean, there was even speculation whether it would bring down the entire Supreme Court. So. The one That was the difference back then. The government hammered me, but the media were still pretty much on the side of the little guy in the, okay. in the start of the social media was definitely on the side of the little guy. And we had things like the NBR who followed it really closely in those days. They mm-hmm. were pretty much doing a story a day. There was so much happening. Um, but what's definitely changed over the last few years, and especially with COVID, is the media seems to have been bought off. And they are now standing squarely with the government instead of standing with the people.
1: And its I can't believe it's just the fund, the 50 million, as bad as it was that the media took it. um, I don't think it can be just that. I just think that they see their role as being on board with, quote, the science, quote, true information, and they equate that with what government tells them.
5: Yeah, well, it's definitely not good science what they use. No, um, it's shocking science. I mean, I, I after I well after I studied science and then I studied health protection. I used to work. My first job was working for the government, the Department of Health, doing contact tracing, and I can still remember. The training session we had with the Medical Office of Health from Wellington, Dr. Ellie Gardner, talking about pandemics and what you should do if there's a um, a sudden pandemic or outbreak of disease. And, you know, everyone said, oh, get everybody home safely. And she said, no, 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 no. You contain them. You contain them on site until you know what you're dealing with.
1: The sick people.
5: The sick people. Not the healthy people. Not that well, well, at the very start, you contain them all because you don't know what you're dealing with. Mm. I mean, we actually that's the funny thing with COVID. At the start, we said that New Zealand should close its borders mm. and and not let people come back from overseas who might have COVID until we knew what we were dealing with. And once we realized that actually it was basically another version of the flu. And it could be treated with a whole range of drugs and early treatments. Then we then we decided that the actually the government's response was a gross overreaction. But actually, at the start, we were more cautious than the government. Yeah,
1: who's the we that you're deferring to there?
5: Oh, the outdoors party. I mean, we, okay. we had a um at our board. We we had an international airline pilot who you know he was flying to Singapore and Malaysia, and over there you couldn't go anywhere without testing mm. and, and real restrictions and then he'd arrive back in New Zealand and just sort of wander through customs and be free to do whatever he wanted to do and he was absolutely mm. horrified
1: so your your political party the outdoor New Zealand party of which you're the leader yeah. um, was formulating a position and your initial position was okay for the out of an abundance of caution let's just stop people coming in until we know what we're dealing with
5: yes yeah that was way back in probably march 2020
1: okay um and the government didn't and then you you were saying once we realized that it was maybe a bad flu it's then that they massively overreacted the other way
5: They overreacted the other way, and by then we had more than enough information to say, well, no, let's just treat it like a bad flu.
1: So you were never on board after that once by March 2020 when New Zealand started to go crazy. At that point, you had parted company with the government narrative.
5: We had. I remember sitting in my office looking out the window at the shallow water where I used to go paddleboarding to do a bit of thinking and thinking, what is this law or supposed law that stops me from going out, and getting sunshine, fresh air, and and a bit of mental health and exercise, and getting into the research and realizing that what they were saying to us was different than what the law said.
1: Yes, and how. Are we ever going to be able to explain that crazy time to our grandchildren?
5: I think there will be some good books. There's already a few movies, but yeah, sure. I mean, on the bright side, it's a great time of history to be alive.
1: It's a great time of history to be alive. I have never been so challenged, so fundamentally, I like the word, discombobulated in the sense that I was all at sea. I am to this day. Do you know, I used to love writing and writing policy prescriptions and here's a problem and here's what the mad government's doing and here's what we should do. Do you know I can't write now because I feel as though I can't even diagnose the problem that we're confronting because that COVID response so rocked my soul yeah because i no one could explain it to me no one could reason it through and it was like you were standing on a sinking ship and everyone just running around in a mad panic full of fear clutching on to straws that they thought would save them like a you know crazy little totem and you have to do this and i wasn't trying to be difficult i was just trying to understand because i could see that this was a big upheaval like no other upheaval and people would just get angry with me you know this is on a personal level this isn't publicly i i didn't do i was out of public life it was so crazy
5: yeah It was really crazy, and it was really crazy because we weren't even allowed to talk about it. We weren't allowed to ask questions. Like People get so angry if you even tried to question something, and yet I was a bit like you. It was like there was a a platform of marshmallow that we were standing on trying to sort of understand everything, and the more you looked into it, the more you sort of sunk down and there was nothing behind it. Um, And
1: any other normal policy, I don't know, put GST up to $0.15 cents or cut GST or add a wealth tax or, you know, all the normal things that a government does. You know, you have a debate and people put that story up and explain why and other people criticise it and then they'll go and do something stupid probably anyway, but you can debate it. This was the biggest policy ever implemented outside of declaring war on another country. Um. Ever couldn't be discussed.
5: Well, I think I figured out why it couldn't be discussed.
1: Oh, please. Yeah. Well,
5: basically, there was never any foundation for it. And it was an invention from, I mean, I've done, I try and do one official information act request a day just to mm-hmm. get information. And, you know, you don't always get good answers, but occasionally you do. And what's really clear, like it, it got me thinking when I went to a conference on, on COVID last year in Vienna. And people said, well, hang on, you've got a minister of COVID response in New Zealand. Why have you got a minister of COVID response? And I sort of thought originally because maybe it was a really big job. But actually, it was because the Ministry of Health, and particularly the regulator MedSafe, wouldn't give the information that the prime minister wanted. So what she did is she set up the Minister of COVID response under the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet so that they could control the narrative. So on the one hand, you had MedSafe saying, we're concerned about the safety and effectiveness. But then you had the Unite Against COVID platform, which we never had any people's names, but it was run by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and by the Minister of COVID Response, which is now the Prime Minister, they were saying it was safe and effective. And I've just got an Official Information Act request back from the Department of Prime Ministers saying that they had no responsibility for assessing the um, health issues about COVID. Like, it's all insane, but it's It's the only way it makes sense, is there were basically two lines within government and they didn't talk to each other and it looks like they didn't talk to each other by design because the regulator wasn't saying what the Prime Minister wanted.
1: Do you think Jacinda Ardern was extremely capable and clever or stupid? (laughs)
5: Uh, I think she was more like the sort of head prefect and she just wanted to be the goody-goody for Bill Gates and her international friends. That's my best call. And she was basically prepared to throw our country under a bus to promote her own career. That's, That's the only explanation I can think of.
1: I think that too. And, man, has she done a great job. Because, you know, she'll go on to have a glittering life. Um, I mean, in her soul, it must be twisted. Um, But it was brilliant propaganda like we've never seen before and an ability to look down the camera and tell complete porkies and then to destroy... Eminent people who had very good questions with literally just a flick of the finger. And yeah. to have the media eating out of your hand and hanging on every word. Oh my goodness. And then to sink the country, you know, beneath the water and resign. Oh, you know, I can't give it a hundred percent anymore. And he'd often and go and have a great life in the UN. Shutting down free speech now for the whole world.
5: It's extraordinary. It's scary stuff. It's it's scary uh, how people couldn't see through it. Like apparently very few people could see through it, or if they could, they weren't prepared to say anything because maybe they were afraid or whatever.
1: What do you why do you think that is? Why do you think look. For my part, I pretty much, if asked, I'd always tell the truth. And back then, I had some radio slots I did until I got no longer asked. And I got asked about the COVID, and I went nuts. And I had a whole lot of people email me saying how, um, what a fresh breath it was to have someone say it was nuts. But I didn't, I was out of public life and had no wish to return. And so I kept my counsel. And so on everything. But what I don't understand is I had very good friends. I had people who I would have thought had exactly my political principles and values. I had my own political party, the Act Party, completely fall through for it. Mm and to regard me as a bad person who's stupid and who never once would inquire to find out why I might disagree with them. But why is it that there were you, me, the protesters that we met, from across the political spectrum, from across the socioeconomic spectrum, all races, all religions, coming together and saying, we don't buy this. What was it? What what was it in your view that made us not
5: buy it? I think it was courage. I think New Zealand's mm. got this huge problem with what I call the golf club syndrome, and nobody, nobody wants to be embarrassed at the golf club. Nobody wants to be the first to question something in case their friends laugh at them. And it's a massive problem. You know, hey, I don't care if I'm wrong about something. It's much better that we talk about it. And if I'm wrong and I'll listen to what you say and I might learn something and I might change my mind. But this idea that you can't say anything in case you might be wrong puts us in a a huge hole. I mean, it, it makes it really difficult to work through issues. What well, we did it. In Nelson, we um we right from the very start of COVID, we used to meet at the supermarket at every Saturday at noon, with our protest T-shirts and and whatever, and we'd we had a few banners that were like two meters long, so we could hold them in the queue while we were waiting at the door. You know how you had to queue up outside the supermarket. And for the first couple of weeks, people used to give a massive circle around us like we were these mad people. And because we were protesting in the queue instead of standing with our eyes down in the queue, we might somehow be dangerous. And so then we had a bit of a think about that. So we came up with this game called What's Your Line? And we and we would get people to draw on the ground, what was the line when they would stand up and question the government?
1: Oh, good one.
5: And how far would it have to go? And interestingly, a lot of people wrote compulsory vaccination, and yeah. so this was way back in in March 2020.
1: Well, you couldn't even contemplate that it would ever come to that.
5: Well, we some of us were concerned because we'd seen a whole lot of different things that have been written and speculated, but it certainly was was a possibility, not a probability mm. in those days.
1: Can I just jump? Well, we're having this thing too. We've had the wonderful Ali Cook on, and we know she's a candidate for you and your party, and we're going to come to all of that. But she told the story, and I watched the video of Damien O'Connor when you presented the results of your Official Information Act, and poor Ali quite rightly and quite understandably reacted. Can you, in your own words, tell us what happened?
5: Yeah, um, I can't even remember what the question was now because we've done quite a few candidates' meetings on West Coast Tasman, but basically I started talking about the COVID response Mm -hmm. and how the ombudsman had refused to give us the contract, but he had ordered the government to give us a summary of the process that they entered into and the process of the contract. And so, what that confirmed is what we'd all suspected—that the New Zealand contract was pretty much the same as the other international contracts that we'd seen for the Pfizer. With Pfizer, that clause five point five said that Pfizer did not warrant the safety or effectiveness of their vaccine because they had not completed long term testing. Um, so, and and so at the same time that. Pfizer had agreed that with the government, the government was telling the people of New Zealand that it was safe and effective. And
1: And that was a complete, well, it was, they had no basis at best for saying that. You could say it was a lie because in having, in saying that, they were making it up.
5: Absolutely. Well, it was worse than that. They they were told another official information request. They were told by the Ministry of Justice that they couldn't claim it prevented transmission, and they couldn't justify mandates or any any pressure on people to be vaccinated unless they had really compelling evidence that it prevented infection and transmission, not just Ashley Bloomfield hoping that it did.
1: So you you had that, and this was before. They came out with the safe and effective and all of that. And Ali Cook is in the audience. You're explaining this, that it wasn't like now presented, oh, well, you know, we didn't know back then what we did now. No, they knew. Ali Cook's 26-year-old son, Bailey, is suffering myocarditis as a consequence of the vaccine. You explained that the government of what Damien O'Connor was a minister of, and what did he, what was his reaction as you saw? He
5: sort of looked down, hid behind his hand, and then smirked. And what was he
1: smirking about?
5: I mean, (laughs) we'd have to ask him, but I imagine. He was feeling guilty. I hope he was I, feeling guilty.
1: I think that's what it was. I suggested that with Ali that it was like it's the enormity of what they did. Mm. But, and, you
5: know, none of it was a, an, a surprise. I wrote to them. In March 2021, so just after the Pfizer vaccine had been given provisional consent by MedSafe with 58 outstanding conditions about safety and effectiveness, and I wrote to them on behalf of clients asking them how they could be proposing to roll it out to everyone in New Zealand over 16 when it only had provisional consent because… Under the Medicines Act, provisional consent meant that it could only be used for a limited number of patients. And we did that High Court case.
1: Well, this is a great case. This is a great, this is a great example, because I've got a lawyer on. I'm excited. <laughs> and not only a lawyer, I got a lawyer that took the cases. Because I'm not clever, right? But I knew that they couldn't know this was safe. I knew that the lockdowns had to be unlawful because I was aware of the setup of the Health Act and I knew that the whole thinking behind it was you quarantine is about the people who are sick. Mm. And I remember saying to people, there's no way there'll be a provision in legislation that would allow you to lock everyone up. And I remember going back and checking on the Health Act. God, a first, only time I've ever looked at a statute since I've yeah. left Parliament. And that was true. So I knew that was wrong. That was sort of obvious. Yep. I also could clearly see that it was a provisional usage. And again, I knew this just from sitting in Parliament and hearing people debate it. I'd never looked at the legislation, that that was for someone dying of cancer, They've got two weeks to live. (laughs) A drug comes along that's not been tested, and the doctor is allowed to tell you, look, this is a new drug. It's not been tested. You've got no time to live. It might work. Yep, exactly. That was the clause or the section of the legislation or the spirit of the law that they used this vaccine on every New Zealander. Oh, my God.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was my thinking, and that's why we went to court. My client and lost. Was...
1: Sorry, and you lost that one, right?
5: No, we won. We won in court, and then they changed the law within twenty-four hours. So they called it an emergency law change, and um, David Parker, the Attorney General, said that it was just a technical change, removing the words for the restricted treatment of a limited number of patients. I
1: didn't realize that. I'm sorry.
5: Yeah, yeah. Because
1: the one, there was the civil servant, the clerk, assistant clerk of the house, who took them on the lockdown. Yep. And they had to change the law for that.
5: Yep.
1: Then you took them that they couldn't be using this injection under the emergency use clauses because it was only for people who are in dire need and on a limited basis, right?
5: Yes.
1: And you won that.
5: We won. The judge agreed with us that um, provisional consent couldn't be used for everyone in New Zealand over 16 because that wasn't a limited number of patients. And they changed the law. They went, I was just on Facebook telling everybody that we'd won the case and messages started to come through to say the government had announced that they were doing an emergency law change.
1: You think that? the judges had t- tipped them off that it was happening or they just it was public by the time they did the emergency?
5: oh that i mean i they must have been anticipating it i mean i'd been saying it to them since march when i wrote yeah it
1: was an it. easy it was like you don't you worry about the courts but it was a clear misapplication oh my goodness you won
5: yeah
1: and they changed it
5: they changed that, it
1: that is that is a 180 degree change
5: they changed it. They told, And they did it with only one reading, with no public submissions, with no um, Bill of Rights report, with nothing as far as I could tell.
1: And those stupid opposition?
5: Well, they made a bit of a token feeble effort. I mean, I sent them a whole lot of information as well, um, Nick Smith and... Uh, I think it was Chris Bishop, I, oh, we sent them a whole lot of background so they had something sensible to say and they still didn't say very much at all. And it all just went through and everyone was like, oh, well, you know, COVID's so serious, we urgently need this vaccine. And yet, even before then, there'd been so much evidence that if you had a good vitamin D level, you wouldn't get sick. If you're already immune, obviously, you wouldn't get sick. There were so Mm. many early treatment protocols that could get stop you getting sick. And they would never ever look at any of that. There was just this massive fear that, you know, we all need this experimental vaccine to save us, even though there were so many concerns about its lack of safety testing and its lack of effectiveness. It's just the most extraordinary process everywhere. You know, I still can't believe how it Went through that kind of process and everyone just jumped on the bandwagon.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? How fear makes you irrational.
5: Which I think is what it was all about. I actually think now that a lot of what happened in 2020 was generating the fear so that people would actually get to the stage they were so scared and so fed up with COVID that they would hold out their arm and have injected into it whatever somebody told them to inject. I mean, that seems to be the modus operandi. I just, it's just extraordinary.
1: The um, fear is what underpins all bad behaviour, and because if you can instil fear as a political leader, you gain power um, because you become the saviour. And it's an old playbook, and Jacinda played it wonderfully. But what made me suspicious... Is that whenever you face in a Western democracy a true threat, the leaders all go on to explain not to panic. But what we had was a very modest threat. And our leaders went on every day to tell us to panic. Yeah. <laughs> and. That, Yeah, yeah, panic! You got to panic! You got to panic! And then scary images—you know, TV would dish up scary images to make you panic. Um, And that's, you know, when you can smell a rat. Um, Oh, oh my goodness! I hadn't realised. That's just sort of set me off on a on a. um, It's left me a bit speechless because a that I was so misunderstanding what had happened, but b that they were so corrupt, so disregarding of basic principles of constitutionality, legitimacy, and again, why? Because they could, they got caught up in it. Like,
5: yeah. It's been a really hard time to be a lawyer. It's been so difficult when normally you can, you know, advise your clients to go to the court. But with the, there were the first two VEX cases, pretty much the same thing happened. You know, I had the same thing with the no jab, no job case where I acted for the um, aviation security workers. And in that case, they changed at least three laws because of our court case.
1: Well, you you've done more legislative change than most MPs.
5: Yeah, yeah, I don't know why I want to bother with Parliament. <laughs> Sue,
1: Sue, Sue Gray turns up with the case. They should actually change the law before you turn up, save everyone's time.
5: Yeah, well, be more efficient.
1: <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Remember there was something that Muldoon did that's famous in law circles because he changed the law over the Clutha Dam or something. And...
5: Oh, I changed. The, he, he was taken to court by Fitzgerald, the school schoolteacher. Is it that one?
1: Yeah. What At was the, it about? Was it he superannuation? He announced that
5: he was going to change the law and he started doing things on the basis of a law that's that he right. hadn't yet changed. Yeah, pretty much what Jacinda did. I mean, yes. all sorts of announcements about things. And actually there was never a law saying the things that they say. They just did it again recently. You know, they did it, um they Jenny Anderson, the Minister of Police, announced that there would be restrictions on convoys and that if you had two or more vehicles in a convoy, they could seize your vehicle. Um and and um yeah, also I didn't know this. Yeah. So that was a big it was a big announcement maybe a, a month or so ago. So I asked <laughs> under the Official Information Act for the Bill of Rights advice on how that could be lawful. Because you know, you might be going to a funeral with a couple of people and a ten people in a convoy. They can come and seize your vehicles if they think that there might have been any law that you were breaking. So when they came back to me, they said, oh no, 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 no. That wasn't that wasn't um cabinet. That was just Labour Party policy. But (laughs) they announced it as if it was a law. And people thought that they couldn't go to Wellington for the convoy or they'd have their vehicles seized.
1: We're talking to Sue Gray. She's the leader of the Outdoor New Zealand Party. She's a long-term activist standing up for citizens against, what would we say, tyrannical corporations and big government and and using the law uh, to do its thing in a democracy, in a constitutional Westminster parliamentary democracy and getting tyrannised because every time she wins they change the law so she effectively loses and she's joined together with Brian Tamaki as to be a co-leader of the Freedoms New Zealand uh, Party, Seeking Your Party Vote. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio Sue, it's a great pleasure to have you on. I'm learning such a lot uh, about these court cases because, as you say, why do you bother when they're just going to change the law? The Fitzgerald case was huge, and the media played it up and how rotten it was that Muldoon did this, and it's like a classic case in the law books, and it prompted Jeffrey Palmer to look down his nose and say this must never happen and it was a constitutional outrage and everything was Fitzgerald after that, a constitutional outrage. This government that we've had, with the support of the opposition that we've had, have done that before breakfast without blinking and Mm. the journalists have either not reported it or reported it up as a world-saving, necessary thing to stop nana dying. It's extraordinary change in our constitutional architecture
5: yeah, it is. It's it's a huge change. Actually, it's interesting. There was another Fitzgerald case in 2021 in the Supreme Court. It was it was also called Fitzgerald and the Queen. Um, but it's actually quite a good case. And that not case, the
1: same a, school teacher.
5: No. <laughs> no, this was a it was a it was a criminal case about the three strikes law, but they actually said some really good stuff in the Supreme Court about our constitution and the Mm -hmm. principle of legality and how it's wrong to override fundamental rights and freedoms and how laws must always be interpreted to protect fundamental rights and freedoms unless there's absolutely no other way of interpreting them. But I've been arguing that in a whole range of court cases in the last couple of years since that case came out. And I tend to get a response of shock from the courts that they don't believe that there can be such a case Um, So Mm. we've got a huge amount of education to do,
1: not least with our judges.
5: Yeah, everywhere through the system, our judges, our politicians and actually the people as well, because the public just are so badly informed about constitutional law and about their own rights and freedoms. And they they really do need to be educated because if you don't exercise your rights, you lose them. And it's not to say that you should go around pushing people, but it's really important to know what your rights are and what responsibilities come with those rights so that we can be a better society.
1: And lawyers are great because they can look at what the law might lean, like the example you gave, where you can see a bad convoy of gang members and you say oh that's bad we need a law, law to stop that and so you rush a law through that will stop a convoy because it's you know criminal intent and then suddenly as you say you could be going to a funeral and the police have the power to confiscate your car because that was the law that you have passed and okay. we have increasingly given enormous powers across to the police to act with discretion in a way that's Against our rights, and again we saw that in COVID. Where we saw a, my favourite example was, you know, the front page of the Herald, where the police drove out to PR or somewhere, and pulled a guy who was out there surfing.
5: Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, and you're thinking, "I'm what? Oh, I, I want to be a policeman. Oh, yes. What do you want to do? Oh, well, I want to go out there and sort of." When there's a pandemic on, arrest people who go surfing on their own at the beach because they might hurt themselves and take up a bed that we need to save for all the thousands of people. I mean, how could okay. you keep a straight face? And 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 as you say, uh, and you, you uh, the law profession and the judges, and you yourself have come under attack from the law society.
5: Yeah, I did. I, I did. For some of the things published on our outdoors party political pages, they um they made preliminary findings against me, they laid charges against me, but luckily common sense prevailed um before the disciplinary tribunal and I successfully argued for a strikeout on the grounds that freedom of speech prevails. Like, even though you're a lawyer. you're allowed freedom of speech. And of course, if you're in courts and you're acting for clients, there are consumer protection rules that apply. Um, But that doesn't stop you having your normal freedom of speech and political speech. I mean, how can you be a politician if you're not allowed to question government policy?
1: Mm. Well, you've got a great track record of taking them on and winning, including the Supreme Court.
5: Yeah, yeah, well, I have, but you wouldn't know that reading the media because I'm no, an anti-establishment no. warrior. No, I whatever. thought you
1: were a complete loser.
5: Um, <laughs> well, I do too when I read about myself in the I paper. I know,
1: I know. <laughs> I used to think it was just me being censored, but we, I had nothing like what you get now, what people get now. And I, I think our opposition were just scared to get bad media. And that's why they go along with it. They sort of got to play the media, and these little tin pot t- guys on their typewriter, are sort of, can, ruin your political career because they choose to. Because you spoke out, you know, against mandates or you required government to follow the law. Um, tell me about the outdoor New Zealand party.
5: Yeah. So we started to promote the kind of Kiwi great way of life and just connection with the outdoors and nature. Um, we, we evolved into the outdoors and freedom party with all the COVID issues. And we had some, another big group of members join up that were really interested in those sort of human rights and health issues. And then recently we became part of the Freedoms New Zealand umbrella. Because the public kept saying, why are there so many small parties? Why can't you all work together? So we said, OK, we'll give it a go. We had a, had a long think about it. We talked to Brian and Hannah and others quite a, quite a bit about it. And we decided that, yes, we can. Um, we can agree on key issues. And we can agree to differ when we disagree on things. And that's actually OK. You know, Part of, part of democracy is getting different views around the table. Um, mm. and we don't necessarily agree, but at least it's a chance to hear the views. It's a bit so, hard explaining it to the public sometimes. Um, so
1: to get Sue Gray into Parliament, we need to give our party vote to the Freedoms New Zealand party.
5: Yes, party vote, Freedoms New Zealand. We would If we get 5%, we'll get six MPs, which would include Brian, Hannah, and Hika from Hika Robinson from um the vision sort of side of it and then myself Donna pokeri Phillips and Ellie Cook from Wouldn't Outdoor that be Freedom. something? We Wouldn't would have be... an awesome team.
1: What it... would be your priority? So?
5: Yeah, for me it's all about um I mean ultimately it's giving power back to local people getting rid of mm. the government tentacles and letting people just get on and run their lives without interference at every twist and turn and letting local people make local decisions for themselves. But to get to that, we need to reclaim freedom of speech. We need to make people comfortable talking about different views and just start asking all the questions that everybody's been thinking about but being too scared to ask.
1: I mean this in a polite way. But I think you're of an age that you would go to law school and never imagine within New Zealand that free speech could be contentious.
5: Yeah, it, it is. It's shocking. I actually wrote to the Victoria University Law School when we were at the protest in Wellington. And they said, Oh, this is terrible. We've had to close down the law school because of all these scary protesters. And I wrote to them and I said, Hey, you guys should be down here. Come and talk to me. You can write some amazing investigations into what free speech and human rights are all about. You're never going to get a better example than never. this. And they wrote back and said, No.
1: Was it the I only had one day, sadly, at the protest, and outside of personal and family things, it was the greatest experience of my life. Yeah. I have never seen or imagined anything like it, and I was so pleased to be part of it because I grew up wanting to go to Woodstock or something. Yeah. you know? And be that be that person that went to Woodstock and (laughs) hung out. And this was our personal Woodstock.
5: Yep. And it was the
1: happiness and the joy. I'm not a hugger. And I hugged everyone there. And it was I realized that you need human contact and touching. And we had been denied that. We we were being in the lockdowns and through the COVID, we were denied our basic humanity. And so you walked into that protest village and we could be human again. It was so wonderful. People were laughing and joyful and cracking jokes. And it was a sense of freedom and the human spirit against that monolithic beehive and parliament buildings. And I looked up to that parliament and that beehive and I thought I spent 15 years there. I think I did. And uh, maybe, yeah, it was 15 years. And I don't recognize it.
5: Yeah. Like,
1: I don't understand. I couldn't, I can't conceive of MPs, particularly opposition MPs, running, not running down, even if they had to put a hazmat suit on to talk to thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's I couldn't conceive of the journalists again they could put on a hazmat suit and breathing apparatus and come down and find out what was going on. As you say, law professors, law students, um it was a, it was unique. Yeah. And it wasn't even about the vaccines. There are plenty of people there vaccinated. Um, it was about the whole charade and the whole tyranny and the whole loss of being able to question it was the most wonderful thing wasn't it
5: it was it just it was for me it must be the most amazing thing i've done in my life i was there for about 20 of the 23 days i had to go up north for for a hooey that i'd organized and i was i was helping um with strategy behind the scenes i was helping um people that were arrested, giving legal advice as best as I could. I went down to the court. It was bizarre. I went down to the court a few days after one of the, that first big arrest. And I, I don't know, there were hundreds of people being charged. they wouldn't let anybody in because you had to be vaccinated and have a face mask on to go in so we had this crazy system where the security man on the door of the court was handing out business cards telling people to come back on you know three weeks later or whatever and and then the people were realizing that they all had different bail conditions and some were trespassed off parliament and some weren't and some had all sorts of other conditions and so there was a bit of a discussion going on so I ended up getting invited Um, to go into the court without a mask and without a vax certificate, to speak to the registrar and to come up with a solution to to basically protect the security guard and to put some sort of order back in. Because it was a bit like being in Africa or somewhere doing justice under the tree outside the kind of building. It was just crazy stuff. Um, And anyway, we negotiated that she wrote a letter that, everybody's bail conditions were cancelled and they just had to return to court on the agreed date, but there were no bail conditions. So everybody could then go back to the protest and carry on until they were next in court.
1: Mm. Well, my little story is I was upset. I didn't get trespass notice because everyone oh. did. Yeah. And, um, because I thought, God, I'd frame that, you know, (laughs) and um, it turned out I did, but they sent it to the wrong address, and then I got an email from Trevor Mallard saying that I was no longer trespassed and it had been withdrawn, and I wanted to write to him and said, here's my correct address, please send me the notice because I want to frame it um, and show what a pillock you are. Um, But So, yeah, I got. I got, you know, how proud am I that I personally got trespassed as my little thing?
5: Oh, well, Uh, I'm jealous, too, because I wrote to Trevor Mallard as well. And I said, I want my trespass notice, too, (laughs) so I can go to the high court and challenge it. (laughs) And I said, I'm not at my home address. Please, can you email it to me? Because I want to get into court and get this sorted out. And he said, oh, I'll serve one on you if and when I feel like it. And he never did.
1: Well, I'd quite like it because I've never – have I, I think I might have – have I ever darkened the doors of Parliament that's leaving? Like I have a person that walks away and that's it. I don't think I've ever been back. And um, I occasionally get invited to things and I have to dream up an excuse as to why I can't come. And it would be great to be able to say, look, I'd love to come, but I'm
5: trespassed. <laughs> <laughs> <Tristan. laughs> uh, exactly.
1: Look, Sue. Uh, here you go, everyone, Sue Gray, well, what what a wonderful woman, and clearly, if you want someone to stand up for your rights, no better person than Sue Gray, what a track record, and what a successful track record, and what a brave, brave woman, and my goodness, we need her in Parliament, and the way to make that happen is to give your party vote to freedoms, New Zealand. You get Ali Cook and Brian Tamaki and Hannah Tamaki. It'd be wonderful. And I gotta tell, I gotta, I want to repeat this to listeners, and a lot of people don't agree with me. But I tell everyone that to vote for the real parties, and I say they're real because they're chock-a-block filled with citizens. And the existing parties, by which I mean National, Labor, the Greens, the ACT Party, the Maori Party, are sock puppets. They've just been there too long, and they just don't talk from the heart, don't talk from citizens. They don't represent us. They represent them. That's your wasted vote because you're just going to get the same old stuff. It's no big change. And then we have these wonderful citizens like yourself and every other, I got to say, party that I've I've loved them all. They're real, right? And to put your name up, they're making a big sacrifice. And even if they don't get over the 5%, your vote is not wasted because you've registered it for what you truly believe. It's like a referendum and you've sent a message. But if you vote for the... Existing parties in Parliament, what you're voting for is for a continuation of what we've got. Up to you. It's your vote. You can spend it how you like. But don't be convinced that, oh, I can't vote for Freedoms New Zealand because my vote would be wasted. No, 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 no. That's a narrative put to you, in my humble opinion, by the legacy political parties and the legacy media. And if you want change, it's in your hands with your vote, because there's plenty of great people, we've heard them on this show, great political parties standing. And to me, they're deserving of my vote, and I think you should consider them for yours too, because if you're upset with what we've got, it's in your hands to change it. Is that a good message, Sue?
5: Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Rodney. The other thing is I'm candidate for for the um, Outdoors and Freedom Party in West Coast Tasman. And oh, we've great. been having a really strong campaign here up against Damien O'Connor, Maureen Pugh, you know, and I mean, Damien's totally part of the globalist agenda. He doesn't yes. like it when he's called Davos Damien. He ah. said, oh, but I only spent one night there. Um, and And Maureen's... Fabulous, actually, but her leader won't let her say what she wants to say to represent the electorate. So why would anybody vote for her? So I've been asking, we've had about, I think, 11 or 12 candidates meetings up and down West Coast, Tasman. I've I've driven, I've borrowed somebody's brand new car and it's already over 7,000 kilometres because we've had so many meetings. (laughs) And um, um, I've been asking at the electorate meetings, you know, is anybody happy with the current government? And pretty much every time, everybody says no. And these are the meetings where Damien and everyone is sitting there next to me. And then I say, are you happy with the opposition? And everybody says no. And I really? say, well, are you ready to vote different? And they go, Good yes. And they all cheer. So there is a huge Good for
1: momentum. you. Oh, well, that's exciting. And if it's a three-way race, you could come through. And exactly. I am with you. I'm with you. Um, Damien O'Connor's a nice guy, but he just goes along with what he's told. Maureen in Pew seems wonderful, but she's got Chris Luxon telling her whenever she asks a decent question to go away and read a book, and yep. go on some Chinese re-education camp. And then you've got Sue Gray, and of course Westland has a history of surprise results with Margaret Moyer in 1990, and then yeah. the great Chris Archibald, who I adored. Uh, They're electing them. And then they've had uh, Damien, whose name is boring. Um, And the
5: whole whole Labour Party started in blackball on the West
1: Coast. Yes, but that was a Labour Party that was men with dirt under their fingernails.
5: Yeah, very you know, different than the current lot, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a pretty wild place. We've had some great meetings. Good on Princeton you, Western and Westport and Collingwood. And-
1: oh my God, I hope you win. Oh, that would, ah, oh, look, it would so make my day to see a new party in Parliament. It would make my day to see an upset. And if ever there was an election where it was possible, it's this one, because I can't get excited about a change of government. You know. Right. I just no, can't. red or
5: it, blue, it's going it, to make very little difference. There. No, my party,
1: I'm, my party, a libertarian party, well, agreed. supposedly <laughs> agreed with me and my family being locked up, yeah, for a fake disease and I, mandatory
5: vaccination. And There's mandatory,
1: in fact, they argued that they should go further and go door to door. I had to have my kids trained. Because, you know, they were primary school age. And I said, if anyone comes at you with a bloody jab, run, rest your arm off them. They know jiu-jitsu. Get your arm out and run. <laughs> and always say your parents do not agree with this. Because I was scared that they'd start turning up to oh. the schools and just willy-nilly start jabbing the kids.
5: Yeah. And, and they show all sign that they will if they can get away with it. It's the scariest thing. What, what they've been doing. You know, the idea of mandatory medical treatment is terrible. And, terrible. We, you know, we've got the same issues with fluoridation and all sorts yes. of other things. But but the idea of mandatory medical treatment, when it may kill you. Yes. And we know that it may because of myocarditis and Rory Nairn. It's been
1: accepted. Yeah. The coroner and the pathologist has agreed it could kill you.
5: Yeah. And and yet they're still prepared to push it under duress. And some of the DHBs have still got health, so-called health and safety mandates, which I don't understand how you can have a health and safety mandate to do something that might kill you either, but that's what they say they've got. Um, everything is just so out of kilter.
1: And wasn't it preposterous? Because you say, oh, okay, I'm just interested. How does this work? Oh, well, what we do is... We don't give you a jab of denatured protein from a virus. What we do it's so clever, is we give you this little strip of mRNA, and it's covered in this lipo uh, nano whatever uh, and it'll travel in, in your arm um, to your cells, and it'll enter your cells, and lo and behold, it'll start making this spike protein huh, so this body of mine will start making spike protein, which is part of this COVID-19 virus. Yes, 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 yes. Well, won't that be? No, 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 no. The spike protein is completely harmless, and it just stays in your harm, and then it just disappears. And you're thinking, Why would that stay in my arm? Why would it just disappear? The whole thing, when it is explained, is so preposterous. Yep. Yep. And as it's proved to be.
5: Yep. So preposterous. Like the spike is the part of the COVID that causes the harm. Why would you want it multiplying for an undetermined time in an undetermined part of your body? Where it, yeah. not, where it will cause inflammation and cause bleeding and cause clotting and all sorts of harm.
1: And don't worry, if you're pregnant, you're perfectly safe for you and baby.
5: Except oh except God. Pfizer don't say that, but trust no. Jacinda because she knows better.
1: God forbid. No wonder Damien O'Connor smirked or looked uncomfortable because if you've got any ounce of humanity in you, and if you have any sense of understanding of what has happened, it's going to be tough to live with the thought that you promoted this.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's going to be, a. I mean, a, anyone with a conscience is going to be feeling pretty bad right now. I went over to um, Europe last year once the restrictions came off. I had to go via Helsinki. It was the only place I could go by without a um, Vax Pass at that stage um, and, and into Europe, into Edinburgh and then Europe. And then um I went to Nuremberg to the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials.
1: Wow.
5: And that was super interesting. And Vera Shariev, who was one of the Holocaust survivors spoke the most incredible speech.
1: Yes. Yes.
5: And I I got to meet her for breakfast um, the next morning with people from the children's health defense, Mary Holland, who was their chief legal advisor who traveled over with Vera um, and a few other high profile people from over there. And, Vera said it was worse. She believes what's happened with COVID was worse than what happened back in Germany when she was a wee child. And her mother had lied that she was an orphan so she could be let out of the concentration camp and taken to Romania. But however bad it was then, she believes that the scale of what's happened now is worse.
1: Of course, but um you accept her testimony? The Child Defence Society, is that Robert Kennedy?
5: Yeah, yeah.
1: Hasn't he proved amazing?
5: Oh, incredible work. Just absolutely brilliant work. Great team of people doing such good work.
1: Amazing man, and he's getting cut through.
5: Yeah, yeah, and he's standing as a candidate for the Democrats, which is actually the side that have been denying everything. Yeah.
1: No, he's, he's been uh, wonderful. When you've heard, because he's standing, he's getting a platform, and I've listened to him online, um, and I've sort of got used to his voice. I can start to not be distracted by it. Man, he speaks to the point. He speaks, he explains it very well. And I read his book. I thought his book was amazing. And um, it's pulled the scales from my eyes on so many things. I was always suspicious of AIDS because... Um, it always seemed a bit strange. Uh, I hadn't realized that there's been a long pattern of um, scaring us about diseases that we can't see.
5: Yeah, yeah. I used to read Robin Cook books when I was a a kid, you know, all those kind of epidemic and fever and all these other books. And So I've been interested in all this a long time. But what's been amazing in the last few years is actually Because we couldn't travel, we were able to talk on Zoom with a whole lot of the world experts. Yes. So, you know, talking to Del Bigtree and Brian Ardis and and Tess Lowry and all sorts of people around the world that normally we wouldn't have a chance of meeting.
1: Yes. And you can join Um, them in on a Zoom call. Sue Gray, I wish you every success for for the campaign. I would love you to win your electorate seat. I would love you to get over the 5%. But. I gotta tell you, I say that to every party because honestly, there's not one I I haven't got a favorite. I had Alfred No on and I loved him. He was great. And so I'm enjoying them all because it's such a difference from yeah, 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 politicians where it's all programmed. Well, you reality-
5: amazing. If if people didn't vote for the hundred and twenty that I know there who ignored us during lockdown, I know, and they did vote for all of the small parties, wouldn't we have an amazing turnaround?
1: We would actually have a House of Representatives.
5: We would. We
1: would. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. That was the amazing Sue Gray. Oh my goodness, I enjoy uh, talking to her, and I could listen to her. Uh, forever, because she's had such an amazing experience of our legal system and going up against it. Why? Just to seek justice and to have the law applied fairly and equitably. Uh, you can get Sue Gray into Parliament, give your party vote to Freedoms New Zealand, vote for her if you're lucky enough to be. And uh, the Westland electorate's got a Another name. Sue, what's the name for that electorate Yeah, West now?
5: Coast Tasman. So it's West a Coast. massive electorate, the whole West Coast and all of Tasman and Golden Oh,
1: I I remember Chris Arkenbolg telling me how far you drive in a week going yeah. to clinics. Ah, that little car of yours will get a lot of kilometres when you're the MP. Thank you for joining us. Remember, send us a text, 2057. Uh Email me at inbox at how blessed are we in this world to have so many good
0: people standing? This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.
1: Here we go. Kira Rodney, thank you so much for your radio show interviewing you and McQueen. Oh! That's an old one. You must have had it on replay about his book, One Sun in the Sky in May. It is a wonderful book. My husband and I love listening to it and learning from it. Now that I have listened to this program, I will read the book, as my husband did quite recently. We were sent it as a reading option from a friend. I have read some other uh, books that you may enjoy. For example, The Bible and the Treaty by Keith Newman. Oh, I hadn't heard of that. Savage Life and Scenes in Australia and New Zealand, first published in 1946 by G.F. Angus. Octavius Hadfield by Barbara McMoran, a collection of letters by Octavius to his sister back in England. How wonderful. The River of the Water of Life, a biography of Ihaka e. Ike Samuels by Bradford Harmy. Who are You Come Home by Jay Rooker. I will look at those books. Thank you so much. With respect, Lee and Boas. Nice. Thank you so much for, I love book recommendations. Ah, uh, The Wonky Donkey has been my son's favorite book since he was three months old. He's almost five months now. If I read him anything else, he's very unstable. But as soon as The Wonky Donkey comes out, he is totally engrossed in it. Ah, wonderful. Love the fact about The Wonky Donkey. We have the book. I didn't realize the meaning about the book. So thank you for sharing that. Best radio out there. Keep it up, team. This is what is needed in this crazy, mucked up world. Ugh, ain't that the truth? Me, I need it. Hey, Rodney, listening with interest, a phrase comes to mind. It's not the person, it's the force behind the person. Doesn't change the fact that actual people must be held to account. Sincere condolences to your guest. Thank you. Hey, guys, I really love RCR and the truth-telling. Asks about the vaccines, as in today's one, the fact that her son was injured. Oh, that was Ellie Cook from the Vax is utterly horrible, and a whole lot of other people have also had injuries from the Vax is insane. The fact that people have been, including myself, been manipulated to get it, it's atrocious. But you guys have helped people wake up from this controversial. hope that's the word, topic is a blessing. Keep going, you guys. P.S., I've been listening to you guys since when you started. Love from Zanes. Thank you, Zanes. Rodney, the denial hurts. It's a double stab at what you're going through. It's astonishing how mind-controlled people are, literally programmed into safe and effective mode. It's the biggest barrier in society now, Marlene. Hello, Rodney. Great to hear Ali and you. Damien O'Connor is a tellman <laughs> when it comes to animal welfare. It doesn't surprise me that he shows no compassion. He has a shocking record of supporting live export, radio, torture and racing. Not to mention the feedlots of the bull and dairy industry I see every day in rural New Zealand. I'm so sorry that Ali had to experience this. All the very best. Jumaru. Thank you, Jumaru. Cam, next time you talk to Winnie, mentioned a good policy could be to look at compensation for the vaccine injured. And it can be funded out of climate change. <laughs> BS fund. <laughs> it's better to fix fund the fake vaccine injured fund the vaccine there. Then we can see or fake. Uh, that. Better to fix fund the f- fake vaccine injured that we can see or fake climate change that we can't see. I think I get that. Let's hope the umbrella party gets over five percent, so others might join next time. RCR should do a poll poll so we can see where the freedom vote is going. Rodney, you're a star. Oh. That's too kind. You say it exactly what I was thinking. Divine justice. This is about Mr. Hipkins, I bet. Our prayers, and yes, we pray to a living God, and he is answering our prayers. Rodney, we also pray for you. Thank you. And welcome to our family of God as a child of Christ. Thank you. Have you watched Netanyahu's speech at the UN two weeks ago about blessings and curses? Deuteronomy chapter 28. I was just reading that. The country had better take note. Anyway, I'm impressed with RCR. I love Netanyahu. Oh my goodness, what a life he is. What a great man he is. Amazing. I'll look at that speech. Hi, Rodney. We're ex-South African. We left South Africa 16 years ago after my partner was a victim of four armed robberies at work. I was a victim of one. That's the reason we came to New Zealand, which we love dearly. Our dream turned into a nightmare when Chris Hipkins, the COVID minister, announced we will hunt you down to make sure you're offered the vaccine. This I can assure you brought much stress to us. Being hunted down is a very serious threat. It caused both my partner and I serious mental anguish. Indeed. Kind regards, Gerhard. Thank you, Gerhard. Awesome musical day, team, from Craig Smith and daughter to John Lennon. But what I really love was the hip-hop play just after Rodney's show. Can you please let me know the name of the artist's tracks, Much Obliged, and say hi to Liz. Oh, thank you. We will. Libby. Liz better find out what that music is. Hi, Rodney. It would be great if you could have this candidate for Manure on your show. You can contact them on the number and there's a reference. I'll have a look at that. Uh, Rodney, sir, what a wonderful show you put together, 3rd of October. I listened avidly as I weeded our huge tunnel house, and everything was exceptional. The music, the conversations, just bliss. I wanted to share a little story with you, as I think these sorts of things are just lovely when they happen, showing the connectedness of, our all, of us all. While I was gardening, I was thinking about my 11-year-old daughter, who was at the wonderful Mount Hobson Connected Online School, which we joined when I lost my job due to mandates. I'm sorry to hear that. The principal, Sarah Boyle, is fantastic and deserving of an interview with her you herself. Anyhow, attending the school means children meet others from all around the country, and so Hope was ended up spending the holidays with one of her best friends living in town now. Southland, well, we are from Northland. Oh, wonderful. The girls plotted and planned to connect, so decided to split the airfare for Hope to fly all the way to Queenstown this holiday. So here I am, gardening and happy, but also slightly mother nervous as my baby is at the other end of the country from me. Oh, how lovely. And I'm listening to Craig Smith, an author. This reading family is familiar with through Wonky Donkey. What do you know? Craig says he wrote Wonky Donkey in now. Just love the full circle of such situations that makes you feel like you're on the right path, frequency and timing. Yes, I know that. And then to top it off, I was lucky enough to be listening to the amazing Tobias Tahi today, mostly missus show due to work and no replays, and he played a song I found years ago through Neuroscientist magazine, which calms anxiety by a huge percentage in which I regularly play to the students I work with at a school, as a school counsellor. Well and behold, there it was, being belted out among all the other exceptional music Tobias played today on RCR. I don't know if you get me on all of that, and i do hope I'm not wasting your time. Not at all. Not possible. With my long and frequent emails to you. All but the universe is an amazing place. And that certainly lets us know when we're on the right track. Much love and respect and appreciation, Libby. Thank you, Libby. And you we love hearing from you. It's from David. Hi, Ronnie. Just listening to a replay of your recent interview with Ali Cook. You spoke about the agricultural minister. I don't think he's a reasonable fella. In fact, just the opposite. He's in with the WF. I could not be bothered to nail it down. His exact comp- contribution in January 23. Check this. That's him, I guess, at the WF forum. Hope this clears up O'Connor's facade. Unfortunately, this fellow is full of excrement and is doing his best to hobble New Zealand. From David. Yeah, I was probably doing my best to be nice. Thank you, everyone, for emailing me and texting me. Remember, you can text me 2057, email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. I do love all your messages. Take care.
0: You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster.
1: Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And then we got that special time where we cover Politics Explained back to the basics in the political sandpit with my very good friend, Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good
4: morning, Rodney. So today's episode, we've got a question from Anne, and she, she asks, do, do you think that, in essence, do you think that advanced voting, the concept is good, or should we all just be voting on the day? Why has it changed from back in the day when it was it was expected that everyone would vote on the day?
1: Well, they changed it to giving advanced voting because they were desperate to get voter turnout up and so the thought was, if they could make it more convenient and you could vote for two weeks uh, ahead of time, that would help. I hate it because mm. they have all these crazy rules. For example, you've got to take all your signs down for election day so you don't be polluted by signs. And I love it that election day is a big day. And if you can't be bothered going out for that particular day, you'd rather just do it driving home, well, fair enough, you don't vote. Um that sense of coming together and camaraderie of all voting on the day sort of made it special to me. And I feel that how can you be campaigning now when people, you go up to somebody, I know I already voted. It just seems to me wrong because like I'm trying to win votes and I say, Hey, Tane, give me your vote. I know I voted yesterday and you're thinking, what? So I don't like it. And in the past, you could always apply to vote early. For example, you were going overseas or you had a problem and you'd always get it. But no, nah, I don't like it. And I see all the politicians are playing along, saying, Oh, I'm voting early, yada yada, whatever. Anyway, I don't like it. So there you go. I'm I'm a grouch today about that.
4: Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. It's sort of even though I never got to experience it where it was like that. I think it's we should all be coming together, unless you're, you've got some special circumstance. To yeah, a mum's funeral you, or same something. Dad. Yeah, yeah. Or you're overseas, and, it, and it gives clients,
1: it gives know. the campaign an imp- impetuous because you know the news is reporting it's countdown, three days to go, two days to go, last minute campaigning. I can remember campaigning to midnight on the Friday, and coming home absolutely exhausted. And then you have this – because this last week or two weeks is frantic. And then you have that amazing feeling as a candidate that you have given it everything that you've got and then some. Yeah. And then there's this final day, election day, and you do nothing.
4: Yeah, you know? I felt the same way last year at the council one. I On the Friday before, before the Saturday, I – uh I was the only one out there. I was on the street just standing on my own, didn't even have any help of volunteers, just holding one sign, got a few toots. There wasn't even that good traffic. So it was a, it was basically a waste of time. But but I, I felt like, I just felt like I had to do it to to do it justice yeah. to, for myself. And then, uh, yeah, it did feel good yeah, to just uh, have uh, uh, nothing to do. And all
1: all, you also get that great sense about an election day as a candidate that you've done everything that you can and now it's over to the voters. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's over to the voters. But like, if half of them have voted before election day, well, when was it over to the voters for two weeks? Anyway, that's that. That's the reality. That's what it is, and you just have to deal with it. And you've been running some stats, Tane.
4: Well, yeah. Just thought uh, as I was looking into the the advance voting and whatnot, I, I stumbled upon a few interesting pages on the uh, election electoral commission website. Just and I thought I'd would go through some of those and, and see if they you know um, gave you any interesting insight or, or memories and and one of the, the key one that I thought was the first one to cover off is the the number of party votes required to win is nowhere near as high as people might think uh, you know we're a population of five million there's you know several hundred thousand I guess overseas but you know the, the Labour and, and obviously there's people under eighteen who can't vote. But, you know, the Labour Party won in 2020 with 1.4, a little bit over 1.4 million votes. And in uh, 2017, National won with uh, 1.15 million votes. So it's not, the numbers are not as high as some people imagine.
1: No, no, no. um, It's extraordinary. And votes count. And I can remember in 2005, ACT got some desultory result, but because I'd won Epsom, we got two MPs, and it was an embarrassing low vote. Um, a lot of people polled higher than us and didn't get in. Um, so it's a funny thing, um, voting. It's a small country. And you'd have also maybe looked at how many people don't vote
4: yeah, exactly. Right. That was the next thing I was going to point to. What
1: is that like? That would be higher uh, these days.
4: Yeah, so you can go, I'll, we'll, we'll get these links in the description for this, of this episode because other people might want to look at them. And in 2020, for example, uh, 18 to 24-year-olds, there were 350,000 enrolled and 77,000 of them did not vote, which was roughly 22%. Imagine uh, that.
1: Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine... Twenty-two percent would make you a huge player in parliament. Well,
4: so I'll make it. Well, make it. Take it one step further. So then, when you go to twenty-five to twenty-nine year olds, they're the they were the worst of the bunch of that year. Yes, they were. They were. Uh, I guess they are the people who sort of because 18, 24 year olds is a bit of a novelty of getting to vote, and then 25, mm-hmm. 29 God, oh, who cares? Kind of can't be bothered. It's not that. Yeah. it's Nothing cool. And then, and then when you get older, you care more, but. So that that age group, 25 to 29, that would have been me then. <laughs> was uh, but I did vote. Was 70 uh, 292,000 enrolled, and 20 almost 26% of them did not vote. So that's 74,000. So if you pair those two numbers, just the non-voters of 18 to 24 and the non-voters of 25 to 29 would be enough to get about 150. Thousand votes, which uh, a little bit over actually, which would be almost enough to get five percent.
1: Amazing, <laughs> amazing. What was the overall non-vote across all uh, age groups?
4: If I'm reading the table correctly, two uh, six hundred and fifty-five thousand, which is yeah, which is, yeah, it's the right number, six hundred fifty-five thousand, and which was eighteen point four six percent of the enrolled number. So, pretty Isn't shocking. Almost huge? almost one in five people who could have voted didn't vote.
1: Isn't that amazing? Uh, we often used to joke that we should call ourselves the none of the above party.
4: Yeah, that's actually
1: a genius idea. Or oh, call yourself, I don't want to vote this year party, or I can't be bothered party, or something like that, because you could capture, you know, 5%. Um, just for the laugh, but I'm sure the Electoral Commission would have words to say if you would said none of the above party. But um, it is extraordinary when you're thinking you're fighting for the vote and there's this big chunk of vote that, I mean, between National and Labour, it's often two or three percent, you know, two or three percent change the government. Two or three percent in MMP. MMP. elections have always been close. Yeah, and um, you know, and it obviously, comes down to getting a coalition together. And if Mister Peters gets back in, it may be him that decides, like he did in what was it twenty twenty seventeen, um, yeah. deciding who will be the government, who will be the prime minister. Um, yeah. Everyone thought he would go with Bill English, but no, he went with Jacinda Ardern. And that's the crazy thing about MMP politics. And those those people not voting. Such a big chunk, make a difference. Tell me, Tane, if I'm overseas, I never know this. If I'm overseas, how do I vote?
4: Yeah, so this one I had to do a bit of research on because I haven't had to vote from overseas. But there's a web page called vote.nz forward slash overseas forward slash vote from overseas forward slash vote from overseas. And on there, you'll find there's essentially two options apart from an extra option for uh, the blind and partially blind there's a telephone dictating, dictation op- option but the, the, the main two options are basically you can download voting papers and upload them or yep. depending on where you are in which country there are overseas voting locations. So there's, uh, for example, I had to look up uh, Japan that there's just one there in Tokyo. I think there's, there's probably two or three or maybe four in Australia, you know, because of how spread out things are. So, yeah, there's those two options to download, upload. the easiest
1: thing thing is to download it and upload it.
4: Yeah, as long as you don't have, uh, you know, tech issues. So that would be the one. But if if you you live in the the city of where the, you know, overseas voting option is, say, Sydney or whatever, then that might be just as easy. Yeah. Well but we
1: used you, to send we used to send um candidates to London and to Sydney and have political meetings because yeah, yeah. huge huge voting block. And yeah, funny yeah, enough, yeah. people in London and Sydney are still keen to vote.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well there you go. That'd be, you,
4: that'd be an interesting um stat to get. We can't get it tonight, but I mean this morning, but uh, the the number of non-voters as a percentage of overseas voters versus domestic voters yes. i would guess that there'd be maybe for a strange reason the people overseas probably value their vote a little bit more
1: yeah and they also tend to be up, up go-getters and so they tend to vote center right
4: yeah yeah
1: that's or why you greens. have the same people over there yeah, yeah, yeah. oh well no, there you there you have it uh you have Yeah, because they're overseas and they're young and they all care about the planet, I'll vote green. Not realising they're voting for communism. Um, Isn't it funny? You can be basically a Marxist party and be pushing the maddest of ideas and you get voted in because you call yourself green and it's sort of like a marketing coup Um, because you think, oh, yeah, I care about the panda bears.
4: It's very skilled.
1: Very skilled. skilled. There we are. Back to the basics. the political sandpit uh, with Tane Webster. Send us a text with your questions. Send us an email. We're on the countdown. Can vote already. Text me twenty fifty seven. Email me inbox at reality and we will have Tane back next week. Thank you for listening.
0: We've got some exciting news right out of the RCR oven. We have our very own mobile app coming out soon. It's currently in testing and it will shortly be available to download from the App Stores, both iOS and Android. Thank you all for being so patient while we've been working hard behind the scenes. Our test bunnies have had a wee play on the test version, and they just know you're going to love it. Our video guy Henry has put together a little video to show you all what's in store. You can check that out at www.realitycheck.radio app. That's at realitycheck.radio app. on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk
1: with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text. I love them. 2057. Send me an email. Inbox at rallycheck.radio. Oh, my goodness. I flick over stuff, and I flick over New Zealand Herald once a day, and usually I click on nothing. But yesterday I had to click on this because I love this story. I just love this story. I want to read it to you. It's about, it's by a Michael Daly, and the headline is Robertson dismisses national claims that Labour MPs will roll camps. Oh my goodness. Here's Porkus Hipkins. I discussed the karma of him getting COVID after being jabbed up the wazoo. Now, while he's isolating at home, uh, I'll read you this report. Labour finance spokesperson Grant Robertson has dismissed suggestions from National that Labour MPs will, I don't know why it's in quotes, roll party leader Chris Hipkins to bring in new taxes if Labour is returned to power. Bishop put out a statement on Tuesday saying, quote, yet another Labour MP has hinted that new taxes on Kiwi homes, businesses and retirement funds are on the cards once a caucus rolls Chris Hipkins as leader. At Victoria University of Wellington on Wednesday, Finance Minister Grant Robertson was asked if Labour candidates were openly defying Hipkins on a wealth tax. Robertson replied, No, of course they're not. Quote, We're in full support of Chris as our leader. He's done a fantastic job, Robertson said. He said, Bishops claim that, Quote, Only Chris Hipkins' shaky leadership was standing in the way of Labour introducing higher taxes was, Quote, Not right. Quote, our manifesto is approved by our caucus and it's approved by our party's council and that manifesto is the one that we have laid out. Oh my goodness, you're in the election campaign. I think people are voting now, right? Two weeks out, crazy as this, you can vote. And here we are in an election campaign, two weeks out, and your finance minister is having to say this, quote, We are in full support of Chris as our leader. He's done a fantastic job. In politics, that's death when your team have to be out there saying that they support you. I mean, we like to think that could be taken for granted when you're in an election. But Grant Robertson is openly having to say it Chris Bishop's done a marvellous job forcing him to do that. That's what's called a total political snooker. Because as soon as you're saying, Grant Robertson saying, we're in full support of Chris Hipkins, little part of your brain says, oh, I didn't realise Chris Hipkins was in trouble. Oh, I didn't realise that Grant Robertson was thinking of rolling him. So know. that's how your brain works. And it's like death to a candidate. So there you have Chris Hipkins, Labour and for, He catches COVID, he can't go out campaigning, and his finance minister is having to run around and reassure the media and the public of New Zealand that they have no plans to roll him. He's the Prime Minister. It's two weeks out from the election. For me, this is just music to my ears. Why? Bit upset with Chris Hipkins for his COVID leadership and the Labour Party. And so them getting a bit of misery, I know it's a terrible thing, sort of makes me feel happy. I don't know. Is it, am I a bad person for thinking that, for just enjoying finance minister saying, we're in full support of Chris leader? <laughs> I mean, imagine if you had someone saying about Chris Luxon, we're in full support of Chris as our leader. It would be just a kick in the guts. Well, Chris Hipkins gets up every morning in his his isolation getting a double whammy and a double kick in the guts. Richly deserved, I say. What say you? Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Radio. I love it. What a great world we live in.
0: People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how, after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like?
2: New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed it's a ridiculous idea and if that idea is taken to its zenith then this country is in real trouble because democracy one person one vote where every vote is of equal value has got to be the foundation of a modern new zealand
1: what's true what's not true how our kids are to be educated and you know i have a great fear for the future i think we know from history where this could end up.
0: You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
5: Oh,
1: wasn't that a great show? Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a lot of Real Talk today, and you're on Reality Check Radio. You can send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. Please do. Wasn't it lovely to hear from... Alfred Naro from New Zealand. Well, he was just um, so amazing, actually, in his story and how he spoke. He really is gifted, really is someone with ability. I just wish I had more than one vote now because all these parties, I speak to each one I'm speaking to them and I think, oh, I so want you in Parliament. And then, of course, we had the glorious Sue Gray and... How fascinating was that, hearing about her cases and her causes and her experience, and that she is offering herself up to be a representative of us in our parliament. My goodness, it would be wonderful to have Sue in parliament too. And as I call them now, the sock puppets. Just make way, because keep voting for the ones that are there. We're going to get more of the same. Put Sue in, put Alfred in. Oh, wouldn't that liven things up a bit? I would love it. Please send me a text, send me an email. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of us. And thank you for tuning in to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Radley Chick Radio. We'll talk next week, Tuesday. Till then, bye-bye.